This episode of the Order 66 podcast is brought to you in part by our sponsors, GoDaddy.com and ThinkGeek.com, and also the generous contributions of D20 contributors, Ender, Alpha Ant, Cyril, Darth Prefect, Prefect, excuse me, bah, Darth Vane, Donovan Morningfire, Full On Gamer, Jeff Rentner, Joe Kell, Cat, Lewin Sewell, Rebel Robot, Recalcitrant 041, and Vader's Son. This and many more episodes are for you guys. In recognition of their loyal service to the Empire, I wish to congratulate my loyal minions over at the Order 66 podcast. I couldn't have taken unlimited cosmic power without them. Lord Vader. What is thy bidding, my master? Present them an any with the grateful blessing, something, something, dark side, something, of their Emperor. Impressive. Hi, this is Ben from Action Collectibles, and I was calling, uh, returning the call for Dave. Uh, Dave, I don't know if this was intended for me or, or not, or, or if you're serious, but I uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, we don't sell uh, race-worn uh, Danica Patrick uh, lingerie. I'm, I'm sorry. It just, uh, you'll have to try uh, somebody else, I'm afraid. Thanks. Hi, this is Kermit the Frog here, and uh, I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Yeah, how you doing? This is Han Solo, and there's no mystical energy field making me listen to the Order 66 podcast. Right, Chewie? You said it, pal. This is Admiral Akbar, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast because it's a trap! Achuta, Dobra, Jabba Buhat, Choneji, Abkismazi, Panwa, Tabu, Order 66, Potakast. Execute Order 66. Greetings, programs. Welcome back to episode number 78 of the Order 66 podcast. It's a glorious occasion here, post-Gen Con, post-Annie, post-everything. September 1st, this is Tuesday night, September 1st, 2009. And we have a jam-packed show for you tonight, including Jedi Grandmaster Rodney Thompson, who will be along a little bit later. But first, we need to introduce ourselves. I 
MGM Dave. What is up, Gamer Nation? I am GM Chris. And uh, for those of you who are uh, uh, sitting down at this table of the Demented for the very first time, we're going to be rolling dice in the greatest system ever created by human hands for role-playing purposes. This would, of course, be Star Wars Saga Edition. And uh, TG is not with us tonight. She has some late-night work to do and has decided to make way for uh, for the grandness that is Jedi Master Thompson. Will be uh, jo- yes. Joining us shortly. So, yes, but uh, I think we can manage even without her dulcet tones. After all, we're going to have Rodney's dulcet tones. You know? I, I bet I bet we can, only because, and it's only because we have Rodney Thompson coming up in here in a little bit. <laughs> You know, it's not we'll it's not every day that we get to talk to the man. The man, not every day, no. The legend, no, it's, it's, yes. The indeed. man, the legend. Yeah. So, hey, man, what's going on? Did you have a good weekend? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I don't have to tell you, man. We just got a nasty project done at work, and uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of happy and, and very relaxed. And uh, yeah, it was a good just, deal. Oh man, I'm just, I heard yeah. uh, I heard your part went good. You know, my part went good. So, mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. it's it's all good, dude. I know, man. So, yeah, it was good stuff. But, oh, yeah, I'm excited to podcast. I've been looking forward to this for several days. Yeah, I so. know. We've been we've been looking forward. So we're going to get to lots of questions for Rodney about uh, about the Rebel Era campaign guide. We might get a slip of the tongue or two in dealing with Galaxy at War. And we've got lots of stuff to talk about in daydreaming. So you guys Oy. stay tuned for the show, and we will get started post-haste with the news coming up right now. Accessing. Ah, good. New acquisitions. My designation is KCK Sim, and this is your Hollow News Net update. Mmm, delicious. Uh, so, what yes. have we got going around around the network? A lot is going on around the network, Dave. The boys from Milwaukee return this week. Hey. Uh, Stealing Order 66's crown for the podcast Skype hates the most. <laughs> oh, what? Well, I, 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 uh-huh. uh, yep. Do a podcast with you know with Skype, Skype, Skype behaving like, uh, yeah, like like that. And if you need proof of this, you can of course uh, check out Bruce City Gamers episode 32, where they lament their hatred of Skype and share their loves of all things gamey. Yeah, it was a good episode, even though they were kind of cutting out. I don't. I don't know which one is cutting out on Skype like that, but you know, it is what it is. My goodness gracious, tis. Now you were telling me something I don't have on the show notes that that uh, one of our newer podcasts, um, along with uh, City of uh, Doors, yes, City, City of, of Doors. Doors. They have a new cast on number three. It downloaded to my Zoom yesterday or this morning, so I'm assuming they put it up last night. Nice. Yes, City of Doors number three, and I forget the title of it. It's the one with something because you know they always they're doing those first three anyway. They bring a couple of new cast members on. They talk about Dark Sun a little bit about the the setting. They Tad. yeah. So it's uh it's it's a very good listen, and I absolutely love if you if you if you hear the lawyer bit in the middle, it will leave you just cracked up. So it's good stuff. It's yeah, good stuff. exactly. So they want to they want to form a class action against every cleric that ever screwed up a cell uh, a, a a heel. 
<laughs> Class action lawsuit. Yes, indeed. So, good stuff. It's good stuff. And speaking of uh, of D&D goodness, if you guys have not listened to Radio Free Homelet's post-Gen Con show, it is up. Um, all in all, it's a pretty entertaining brain dump. Uh, <laughs> uh, very, very nice, and there's some nice juicy bits therein too. So be sure to uh, to check that out. Yes, it is, it is goodness. Absolutely, Brev and Tenny release release episode number thirteen, where they discuss the perils of of storage. However, I got to be honest with you, I haven't been able to download this episode. Really? Oh, see, see, see. I'm sure Brev's listening. He needs to know that I download every episode of Minnie's Mayhem the instant it comes out, before it comes out, actually, just so I can. Get a chance to listen to his, you know, All sweet right. voice. So on I'm, the gonna, I'm gonna, oh, yeah. according to Admiral Akbar, I'm gonna set you a trap. So have you listened to Thirteen? Um, not, not yet. No. That's what I'm saying. I don't think anybody can listen to Thirteen because Twelve comes down in the download. Oh, yeah. So I, I <laughs> see. Faux pas. My, yeah. My, my bad. My <laughs> M M B Gamer Nation. I tried and I listened to the same episode. I was like, wait, I've heard this before. Oh, it's Twelve. They're talking about. They were talking about Palps. So. Yeah, go figure. Uh, well, we I, need to... Uh, I told yeah. Brev, so okay, hopefully good. he's going to fix it. Uh, he might have already fixed it, because Alpha Ant says he got the right episode, so... Good stuff. Good stuff. And the Small But Vicious podcast fills our ears with the voices of Sigmar's two favorite people, Old School and Shibuda, Shibuda who while away a delightful Shibuda, episode Shibuda. enlightening us on all things arcane magic in the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game. Check out episode 7, which is up right now, Arcane Adventures. Yeah. Yep. And off the top of the show, no, I was not in the market for Danica Patrick underwear. Somebody played a neat little joke. It was funny. I thought it was funny, so I played it on the show. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure, Dave. Whatever. I'm telling you. I promise. Uh-huh. I promise. Yeah, I'm sure. Whatever. Dude, juicy bits of web goodness. Mm. All right. Guys, gals, aliens. Ah, it is yes. time. It is time. Dave, is it not time? It's time to show Sam some love. It's time to speak out for Star Wars. Yep. To speak out for, for an awesome video game and an awesome guy. D20 Radio's own Sam Whitwer. Yep, own. Dave, Dave, tell us about this. All right, GameSpot is running a contest to determine the greatest video game hero of all time, and guess who made the finals? Vader's Secret (gasps) Apprentice. That's who. That is awesome. Yep. They are, he is up against some great, great competition. So you guys go to GameSpot.com. Yes, and they'll have a link on the main page to vote for the contest. Yes, Um, vote for Vader's Secret Apprentice. Now, this is a bracketed vote, guys. So, honestly... I don't want to be mean or underhanded on the voting or tell you not to vote your conscience. I mean, I would tell you to vote for Sam for everything, but you need to do more than that. You need to plan ahead. Not only do you want to vote for Vader's Secret Apprentice and everything, but looking ahead, you want to vote for the crappier competition as well on the other ends of the brackets. That way, when he finally gets to them, he will beat them soundly. Does this make sense? It does It does make sense. So this is like, a, uh, this is like the U.S. amateur of superhero contests, or Damn video game hero contests, in other words. Damn skipping. Damn skipping. And you know, there's some good competition out there, but quite frankly, we we, we gotta get Sam at the top of the bracket, guys. It's Star Wars. Right. Ga- GameSpot.com. Vote. Oh man. Go. No. Now. Be that way. Okay, and those of you, all thirteen or fourteen of you that I mentioned off the top of the show, have noticed that your names have turned red on the forums. Woohoo! There seems to be a pretty good amount of red these days on those forums. Red denotes D twenty radio contributors. We talked about this last show. Mm-hmm. And we even had one dude, like register 
made one post, and this is like recalcitrant, 041. Registered, <laughs> made one post, and became a contributor. So we love that. That is to say, after Gen Con, it became very apparent how devoted a lot of the members of our Gamer Nation are. It was, to put it kindly, and in your words, Chris, it was incredible and humbling. All at Extremely. the same time. So a lot of you have made donations in the past and T-shirt purchases and, and all that to keep to keep our network going, going strong, paying our helping us pay our bills and whatnot. So we wanted to say thank you to all the contributors and offer the next step for anyone else who wants to claim the status as a heavy-handed contributor. So if you become a D20 Radio contributor for two bucks a month, it's not required, obviously. You will reserve the status of D20 Radio Contributor. You get your own title on the forums of D20 Radio Contributor, although you don't have to give up your current title, Donovan Morningfire, for example. I gave him his well, old title back. He's, yeah, he's you a know. moderator. Yeah, exactly. Well, likewise, you know, Sterling Hershey and, and Rodney and, and Gary and the other guys that are on, right. you know, they can still keep their moderator title. Or oh, their, yeah, their no, they can keep their game. special titles, and, and but they, <laughs> you know, their, their name will still turn red, and you'll see that these people are helping the network succeed. So what are we going to do? So are we like paying the salaries of the D20 radio personalities? No! <laughs> are you kidding That's me? Fun. We do this for free. What we're doing is we're funding the dice that we give out at Gen Con, the dice that we will send out as when you become a contributor. We pay our music royalty fees. We pay for bandwidth. And better and best yet, we pay for the forthcoming D20 radio live streaming Radio, internet radio channel. It is expansive. Which is that's right. We're you know we're we're just getting started. Thirteen of you started. That's awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Anyone else who wants to help out and claim this tag for yourselves and be proud, wear it proudly. We would encourage you to go to d20radio.com, click on the swag link, and it'll take you there. Wahoo, Nebraska. Yeah. Wahoo, Nebraska. It's good stuff. Yes, my master. So, all right, those of you asking for Luke Lowbrow, guess what? <gasps> no, it's, 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 this is the Holonet News Network, your first source for Imperial propaganda. I'm Luke Lowbrow. The Imperial Ministry of Security would like to remind all citizens of their duty to report any and all Jedi sightings. Local Coruscant law enforcement have recently updated their profile of the Jedi perpetrator. After years of not finding Jedi in brown robes, they have come to the conclusion that Jedi may in fact be wearing other types of clothing. Detective Gordo Ban Dogfluff of the Coruscant Precinct 9234 explains, We spent years looking for them Jedi in the brown robes, and then we had a breakthrough, an epiphany. Vinny Borogovsky down in Vice Squad figured it out first. He told us no Jedi in his right mind would be caught dead wearing no brown robes. No Jedi, even on a backwater desert planet like Tatooine, would be that stupid. Even if he was on Tatooine, living on the borders of the Juddlin Wastelands, and only came into contact with Sheki the Jawa with a learning disability, would be so stupid as to walk around all day in brown Jedi robes. He's just asking to get ratted out. Those Jawas gossip like you wouldn't believe. So we wised up here on Coruscant. We figured if Yuz was a Jedi on the lamb, what would Yuz be doing to pay the rent? 
You'd be using your force powers to make a little dough. You'd be a magician. It's the perfect disguise. So we decided to round up every professional magician on the planet and put them into custody. We rounded up their pretty assistant girls, too. They had a lot of, uh, uh, information. Well, we ran out of respectable theater-performing magicians to round up, so then we went after the street magicians with their card tricks. When we ran out of those street magicians, we started rounding up birthday clowns. That was a stroke of genius. I can't tell you how many Jedi in the greater metropolitan area are hiding out as birthday clowns. Just last week, we put a Jedi away in the slammer for good. How did we know this Jedi was the real McCoy? Simple. He was using his Jedi powers to make balloon animals. But he couldn't just stop there. He fashioned two lightsabers out of those balloon animals to give to the kids to play around with. What color were those swords? Blue and green. Case closed. If he'd made red lightsabers, well, he may have been a Sith Lord trying to make a few extra bucks on the birthday clown circuit. I don't know. This is one crazy town. This has been a Holonet News Network update. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program, the holodrama called The Twilight Vixens Whose Mouth Always Said No, But Her Tentacles Said Yes. Hi. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. All right. <laughs> oh, delicious. I love it. Oh, dude. So. I go down to my mailbox, um, what, I guess it was two days ago, Sunday morning, and um, I had something waiting for me there. Can you believe it? No, I can't. You you can't? Okay, well, you should. Because I have in front of me a postcard that came in this week from our good friend and show correspondent, Commander Cody. Now, this simply made postcard carries a, a pastoral picture of a community of burrows on an open, grassy plain, and it, it smells faintly of wood chips. And the words on the postcard read, The Tintinna welcome you to Rin, visitor. Be safe. Rita. Rita now. From across the galaxy, it's time for postcards from Commander Cody. GM Dive and GM Chris. Hi, boys. Our trip with the Emperor was pleasant, but it's back to business as usual this week. The delivery boys were entrusted with another highly sensitive transportation job. We've been sent to a backwater world in the Outer Rim Territories. Quite frankly, I've never heard of it. The planet Rin is a small, pastoral world very much out of the way. Unremarkable. Unnoticeable. The perfect place for someone to hide and stay out of the way. Our navigator told us that several bandits and smugglers use this world as an out-of-the-way base of operations, and I believe it. The surface of Rin is mostly grasslands, with small oceans. What I was truly unprepared for were the native species, a group of primitive rodents that call themselves the Tintinna, although some of the men call them the Tintin Dwarves. The rats stand, if you can call it that, less than a meter tall. Uh, just because some rat race wears clothes, has a language, and builds crude machinery doesn't make them a galactic player, I always say. But the Tintinna seem to be observant and learn quickly. I've already noticed several of them using galactic technology with ease, probably traded by other travelers to this world. We've managed to barter with a little beast to locate our transport target, a shifty Imperial officer who had no idea we'd been sent to retrieve him. 
I'm not sure how long he's been hiding out on this world, but we found him in one of the crude local borough homes, wearing a tattered uniform and shaking. I'm not sure why he was hiding out here, or who sent him here, but he's got a stutter and a nervous disposition, and won't tell us anything about how he managed to convince the natives to let him stay in one of their dwellings. No matter. Imperial Command wants him back, and he came without protest. We're about to chit off this world, so I guess it's time to sign off. Can't ever see myself coming back to this backwater hole, but if you guys are in the outer rim, and you get a fancy to stare at miles of grass, enjoy some decent peace and quiet. And if giant talking rats don't bother you, then Rin is the place for you. Later, chips. Long live the Empire! Your friend, Commander Cody. Well, beautiful. Thank you very much, Commander Cody, for that beautiful musical interlude. That's what Commander Cody's all about, is beautiful musical interludes. Rat bastard, I say. <laughs> I think that's rather inten- uh, rather uh, appropriate for the planet Rin. Yeah. you know <sighs> That's the way I roll right there. The BBC would like to announce that the next scene is not considered suitable for family viewing. Okay. I just felt like putting that in there. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. Because you never know when Fragments in the Rim could get really rocky. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard well, them actually be, uh, you know, vulgar or anything, but well, you never know. I was going to say, Alex and Trevor are two of the most vulgar individuals I've ever met. You know, every word out of their mouth constantly is just an expletive of the highest degree. I know. They, they make nuns cry and children cover their ears. They're, they're just, you know, they weep good gravy. Because of their weepings. All right, so we'll take a break for about four and a half minutes, and then we'll be back. We'll be back with the guest of honor, the Rodney Thompson himself. So, Fragments on the Rim, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy it for the next four minutes. We'll be back. Welcome, Jedi Masters, to Fragments from the Rim. How may we be of service to you today? Hi, this is Alex. And Trevor. This is segment number 26 of Fragments from the Rim. For this segment, I've chosen to talk about a rule that I've missed. I can't remember exactly where I heard this, whether I read it online or whether I heard it on the podcast earlier or not. But I'm looking at the Jedi Academy Training Manual, page 14, the column entitled Force Talents, the second paragraph. There it says, The Force Disciple, Jedi Master, and Sith Lord Prestige classes all state that they can select talents from any Force Talent tree. A Force Talent tree is any talent tree that isn't limited to a particular class and requires the Force sensitivity to access its talents. This means that the talent trees belonging to the various Force traditions, such as those presented in Chapter 4 of this book, are considered Force Talent trees, as they are non-class specific but require Force sensitivity to access. Other talent trees that fulfill these criteria include the Altar, Control, Dark Side, Light Side, and Sense talent trees, as well as the new Guardian Spirit talent tree presented in this chapter. Class talents, such as those belonging to the Jedi class, are not considered to be Force talents. I read that and thought, my goodness, that's a huge change to the rules. Except that it isn't. If you go to your Saga Edition core rulebook on page 220, and underneath the Jedi Master entry, and you read the talents description, it says, at every odd-numbered level, you select a talent. The talent may be selected from the Duelist talent tree or any Force talent tree in Chapter 6. And Chapter 6 includes the Gen Sarai and the Dathomir talent trees. This was a bit eye-opening to me. I actually promptly then started actually reading those talent trees, because before I hadn't, because 
it was quite difficult to actually gain access to them. And so I'd like to share with you one of the talents that I found quite fascinating. If you take your book, the Jedi Academy Training Manual, and turn to page 75, under the Barando Sage Talent Tree, you could now take this talent for your first level of Jedi Master, or Force Disciple, or Sith Lord. It's entitled Precognitive Meditation. Once per day, you can spend 10 minutes meditating to seek visions of the future. At that time, you can spend a Force Point as part of this meditation. Once during the rest of the day, whenever you or a vehicle you pilot are the target of an attack, you can choose to negate that attack, provided the attack roll is not a natural 20. At the end of the day, if you did not use this ability, you regain the Force Point you spent on the meditation. That's a pretty nice ability. Over to you, Trevor. And today, I'm going to talk about the channel energy from the new control talents on page 16 of the Jedi Academy training manual. What it basically says is that whenever you use the negate energy force power to successfully negate the damage from an energy weapon attack, you can spend a force point as a reaction to immediately activate any force power currently in your force suite. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it adds a new level to the negate energy power. Before, negate energy was either... Uh, just negate the energy that has attacked you or spin a force point and get that damage back in hit points. So it was a, it was a way to heal yourself without having to, you know, spend a second wind or, or a uh, med pack or such. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it doesn't say that you have to use the force power against whoever shot you. So you can use any force power in your suite. So by using this force point, you're effectively getting, as a reaction to being shot and absorbing the energy, a free standard action in which to use any force power that you want to use in your suite. So you could move around using a force power, or you could move an object, or you could, you know, any sort of, you could ready battle strike for that, for that matter. So it's a very interesting and versatile ability and adds a whole new element to negate energy. Anyways, if you have any questions or comments, please uh, send Alex or I an email at order66 underscore fragments at rogers.com. And until next time, have fun gaming. Thank you, Masters, for visiting Fragments from the Rim. And as always, thank you very much, Alex Trevor, for Fragments from the Rim. You guys do a fine job, I might say. Uh, they always do. Always. Oh. Oh. Yeah, the force, the force will be with them. Always. That music means it's time for one thing and one thing only, and that would be <sighs> that it's time for the meat. The introduction of, <laughs> yes, I've heard in high school that he was called Meat. <laughs> oh, dear. Please, everybody, welcome to the show in Echo Base right now. Please give a round of applause to Jedi Master Rodney Thompson. Meat, really? That's that's the best you've got for my high school nickname? <laughs> that's not the hey. best. It was just the only one that, you know, just played right into it. So I actually, uh, I had... Only one nickname in high school that that my friends called me, and then uh, I had a smaller, lesser-known nickname given to me by uh, some guys that I didn't really hang out with that much, but uh, they were kind of popular and 
stuff, and I was kind of I wasn't unpopular. I was just kind of hanging out, and so uh, my friends that I hung out with a lot. My nickname with those guys was Zoltar, uh, which nice. I know sounds weird, but uh, if you guys have seen the movie Big, uh, you'll know what the Zoltar is. Oh yeah, it's uh, the machine. Yeah, oh, yes. yeah. yeah I, let's just put it this way: I was a bit on the short side in high school. Oh. Yeah. And and so, so I other guess guys you wouldn't have, to call yeah, me. They're uh, definitely not called me. Robotney. 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 Oh, Mister okay, Robotney. That's going to need some explanation. Uh, that's it. Just robot plus my name. Oh, oh! See, that went like over my head. Yeah, because I'm, I'm over like your that. head between the leaves, falling down. Like, oh, yeah. 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 Very nice. All so right. yeah, ha- happy uh, happy fun time. Me telling all about my. Uh, Lame high school nicknames. I'm sure that's why you wanted me to come on the show. Damn, Skippy. Actually, I consider it the high point of this episode. Good. Good. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. Nah, yep. See, now that we've hit the high point, it's all downhill. It's you. all downhill. Oh, yeah. man. You know, we haven't had John since the Ennies. I wanted to congratulate your system on, what, two wins? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, Clone Wars campaign guide. We got a silver for um, best uh, supplement. supplement, I think. Yeah. And uh, then hanging out in the chat room, our uh, good friend uh, Christopher West has a uh, contribution to Scum and Villainy winning uh, Best Cartography. So, Uh, yeah, I was uh, I was I was pretty happy with uh, with the results. And I'm sure you guys were thrilled with uh, with winning the any congratulations as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. We were we were totally stoked. And yeah, I just noticed Chris West is in the Echo Base. That's awesome. Oh, you wait. Guys sh- you guys should check out Chris West's work at uh, mapsofmastery.com. Hold on. You know what? I have something from him. <laughs> I think I have something from him. Maybe. Hi, my name's Christopher West. I make maps for the Star Wars Miniatures game, and I never, ever listen to the... the uh... <laughs> I knew I was going to an older one. Hi, my name's Christopher West. I make maps for the Star Wars Miniatures game, and I never, ever listen to the Order 66 podcast. See? <laughs> Remember that one? Yeah. He never listens to the Order 66 cod piece. That's right. <laughs> well, Rodney, thank you for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. We got a lot of sure. good stuff to talk about. Um, first and foremost, Dave gave you grads on the Ennies. I'm going to give you grads in a different way. Although it's kind of belated, not for for you, but it's new news to us, dude. Big grads on Dark Sun, man. Uh, thanks. Um, I I am uh, the lead developer on the books, which means that basically uh, I'm going to take everything the designers turn over and try and make it fit for public consumption. So uh, <laughs> I'm pretty jazzed. Uh, Dark Sun's one of my favorite campaign settings. I uh, have a very large bookshelf full of Dark Sun books sitting in the other room. Uh, it's not quite as big as my Star Wars collection, but um, Dark Sun and uh, Al-Kadim were my two favorite D&D campaign settings of all time. So getting to work on the new 4th edition version of uh, Dark Sun has been it's been a treat. Let's put it that way. And we're we're just completely elbows deep in in working on it right now. So uh, it's it's pretty much the focus of all of my uh, all of my time uh, on D and D right now, That's Dude. great. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, we brought you on the show. You were kind enough to come and answer some questions about the uh, I recently. I said recently. It's been several weeks now. Uh, the Rebellion Era Campaign Guide, um, and and uh, you know a few other questions we might be able to pepper in there as well. So uh, 
obviously very similar to the format we had last time we had you on. I figured we could we could get into some of the questions about the book, and that might lead us into some additional discussion of high points of the the book in question as we go. Does that sound good? Yeah, man, sounds great. Awesome. Well, Dave, why don't you hit us up with uh, with the first of our questions here? I think I think this was regarding the the, the some of the new species that were in uh, in the Rebellion Era campaign guide. And I um, before we start this, we have Talkshoe up and running. Okay. Oh, yes. For those of you that signed in to Talkshoe, however, Talkshoe has thrown a shoe and has kicked everybody out of the room. <laughs> so, please call in again. <laughs> no, I mean literally, it, it's not working. So. I'm going to table it for the time being. Okay. Hopefully yeah. we can get it up. Yeah, Bye. it sucks. It sucks. In. It sucks, man. We need something. Aye. Aye. All right. So Brev started off with a question about new species. He says, there are several iconic races in the Rebellion era, in the rebellion era like the Burpine, Dracelian, Bith, etc., etc. But this is the first book to not include any new species. I'm curious about that decision. Was it a space issue or a creative choice? Uh, well, it was a creative choice. Uh, well, actually, it was kind of both, but I, I'm going to lean towards creative choice because that makes me <laughs> sound much more responsible. Um, although I, I am going to actually question the premise of Brev's question, which I have the luxury of doing. He mentions, uh, you know, the Verpine, the Dracelian, Bith, Arconicius, Um Those all, I, I think, uh, let's see here, two of them don't even appear in the classic trilogy films and uh th the other three appear in basically the blink of an eye in one scene of those those uh uh those classic films so what i'm getting to with my snarky little uh, uh oh. Oh. dissection of these of these race choices he made is that i think the actual more iconic races have already appeared in the game in the form of the Saga Edition Core Rulebook, right? Because when I think of the Rebellion Era species, I think of things like Wookiees and Twi'leks and Celestins and Mon Calamari. Basically species that have speaking roles and that last more than just a few seconds. Um, and that that uh, there's some, you know, there, there's a desire always to see new new species coming out. But basically, when I sat down and looked at it, I realized that we had designed the core rulebook really towards mostly the Rebellion era. And yeah, we cover some Clone Wars uh, era stuff in the core rulebook as well, but it's already very much geared towards the Rebellion era. So when I was concepting the Rebellion era campaign guide, I was looking at it saying, okay, well, we've already got a real iconic species. Instead of trying to cram a bunch of other species in there, why don't I make this book really complement the stuff that we've got in the core rulebook, right? And so that's why you get species feats instead of new species. I, I just I kind of felt like we already hit the the really iconic races, and um, given the number of species that are out already, I kind of felt like this was a good chance to take a step back and you know go back and revisit those original core rulebook species and try and give them some new things to make them more appealing. I mean, we really learned a lot about game design and game development from the time that we finished the core rulebook until the time that Rebellion Era Campaign Guide started being designed, right? And at that point, you know, I looked back and I said, well, there's a lot of races in the core rulebook that just they just don't compare as well either to each other or to some of the races that have been coming out in subsequent books, right? So the species feats allowed me to go back and say, okay, we, we can't just you know rewrite all these species that are in the core rulebook, but I can 
give them a few things to bump them up either, you know, flavorfully or um, in some cases, you know, mechanically bump them up to make them more appealing, right? So if, if I'm coming into the game fresh and I've got a couple of the books, I don't gla- you know, just gloss over the ones that are in the core rulebook, right? I say, okay, you know, I want to play a, a, you know, a Twi'lek, and then I look at the Twi'lek stats and I'm like, wow, these really aren't, you know, as good as, say, I don't know, pick any other races out of the Knights of the Republic campaign guide, right? Yeah. We, we we just learned a lot, and there's there is definitely something of a disparity between the two. So the species feats aim to bridge that gap, and also you know let you spend your character resources on some things that are both mechanically beneficial and also kind of flavorful. I mean, one of my favorite ones is the one uh, I think is for Ewoks, where you can you can scavenge, um, or you can uh, see here. I'm trying to remember exactly which one it is. Uh, anyways, there's, there's an Ewok feat in there that I really really liked. It's basically like, okay, this this does something mechanically, but it's also flavorfully appropriate. Um, that makes sense. <clears throat> gotcha. I, I just, I, I thought about it, and what I want, I didn't want to happen was for the, the core rulebook races to just fade into the background of the game entirely. Yeah, no, I think we know what you're going. And Brev, oh, yeah. please, take, no, put the gun down, Brev. Put the gun down. We have another, we have another question. Maybe you won't get schooled. You won't get beat like you stole something no, with your no, next no, question. No. Oh, the Ewok feed I was thinking of is Keen Scent, where it really expands your scent ability out. I mean, scent is, is deceptively good as a species I, of I, uh, in the first place. Yeah, so. you, yeah, you're talking to an Ewok lover right there. Yeah. Not not in that way, but yeah, I, I like to play Ewoks, yeah. Um, hey, man, we're not here to judge. <laughs> nah. Yeah, but that, that actually answers one of Brev's later questions as well when coming to species feeds. But um, Brev had a couple, and, and the next one was kind of moving into the, the background mechanics. Now, there was a lot of talk about background mechanics. Uh, pretty much, I have yet to, to meet a single person. It seems like every new book has introduced some new type of mechanic, and, and this was, you know, the, the, I guess the, new, the main new type of mechanic in this book. And I've yet to talk to anyone who says, yeah, this sucks, I don't like it, I'm not going to use it. Everyone just hails this as an amazing thing. And, and Brev asks, okay, in, in the background system, it's suggested to not use it in conjunction with the destiny system found in the core rulebook. Can you elaborate as to why it's felt the two shouldn't both be used? I feel a hero's past is just as important as their future. Do you have any troubleshooting ideas if we as GMs choose to allow both to be used during PC creation? Yeah, make your point buy-in less. (laughs) So the answer is that I'm going to give is really divided into two parts. First, there's a flavor element to it. Uh, one of the reasons why the background system came into my field of vision originally uh, as an idea was because I was thinking about the Rebellion Era, and then I was thinking about the way Destiny points work, and I was like, you know, Destiny points in the Rebellion Era aren't always the greatest combination. Sometimes it's okay, but you can do some crazy stuff with Destiny points that doesn't really fit the classic trilogy movie motif, right? And, and to me, the Rebellion Era is the classic trilogy and vice versa, right? So right, yeah. I was thinking about, you know, what can we do, what can we substitute in for the crazy use of destiny points, and thus the background system was born. Right? It's like okay, it's not so much about the you know where you're going, but like you you come from this background that's led you to be a hero, right? So for a rebellion era campaign, I wanted to give you something to substitute in for the destiny system that would 
likewise let you build characters that felt like they they fit a little bit better into the setting, right? I mean, to me, exactly. the classic image, image of the Rebellion is, you know, you've got these heroes that come from very mundane, in many cases, or very different backgrounds, right? Like, I, I love the Rogue Squadron novels, right? So, you know, you look at, like, Wedge Antilles, his parents owned a refueling station, right? And right. Luke yeah. was a farmer, and, you know, things like that, and... I really wanted something to reflect that in the Rebellion era, and so that was sort of why it was chosen as the replacement, right? As for why I didn't just have it be purely additive, uh, one, because I wanted to seem like, you know, you were actually trading something off for that flavor difference. But the other thing is, in game design, there's such a thing as player bandwidth, right? When a, a player, or in, it's the same for GMs too, but when a player sits down at the table to play a game, there's a finite amount of stuff that he can keep track of easily, right? And now, while most of the background stuff is static, and you basically write on your character sheet and forget about it, there's also, you know, I, I also had some trepidation about adding something to the game that was just a pure, you know, addition to the steps that you have to go through, right? So, um, basically I looked at it, I was like, well, okay, if my players are sitting down to play the game and I say, you know, use backgrounds instead of destiny, instead of wasting time, not wasting, but instead of spending time picking their destiny and thinking about what that means, they spend their time picking their background and thinking about what that means, right? Um, it's something a lot of people, I think, forget when they uh, design new rules elements is that every time you add a new subsystem to the game, you're increasing the amount of bandwidth, uh, mental bandwidth, that players and game masters have to spend both learning it and using it. Uh, and practically speaking, I don't want our game to be any more complicated than it is. Uh, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, Star Wars is not D&D, right? It's not the big dog on the block, right? And so people are going to play Star Wars less often, and I want to put fewer barriers up between players and the system. So the big reason I suggest exclusivity is so that, you know, a game master doesn't sit down with this book and that book and, you know, a couple other books and overwhelm players at the point of character creation to where they're just like, you know what, let's forget this and you go play D&D, right? I want players to to feel like they can play this game quickly and easily and build characters quickly and easily. And if you wanted to mix the two in your campaign, you know, I'm not going to tell you that that's going to going to break things. Although the flexibility that the background system provides is it's it's a it's, it's a deceptive power up, right? I mean, it can completely alter the way that you build certain characters. Completely. So, so can you offer any advice then if you wanted to use this in conjunction with Destiny? Um I would say watch carefully what your players decide to do with any talents and feats related to skills, right? And, uh, I don't know, I might, I, if you're going to integrate the two, there's no, there's nothing I can I point to and say, oh, you should absolutely change this rule because it will solve any problems that you right, might encounter right. because they weren't designed to be used together, okay. right? They were designed to be used separately. And so I can't predict how they're going to interact with each other. Um, I don't anticipate that there would be any major pitfalls. Like I say, the, the biggest reasons were to avoid adding a layer of complication, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that makes good sense. Well, excellent. Very nice. Because I, I love the background system. I know we've waxed poetic about it on, on earlier episodes as well. And um, it's, it, it's, it's good stuff. But no, that, that, that enlightens quite a bit. Thank you. 
Well, coming back to, I guess, what you alluded to, which is species feats, we had several questions. Brev's, I think, was already answered. He wanted to know kind of what was the inspiration behind doing it. And um, and this next one, you may already have answered, but Dave, why don't you hit us up with uh, Rakesh's question? Rakesh. Uh, he says he uh, loves the new species feat. They add a whole new level of racial customization. And asks, are there any plans to include such feats in future volumes, or were they created as sort of a replacement for not adding new races this volume? I think you got the last part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't say that we have any plans to include them uh, in, in any books coming up, um, just because this was something that we were trying out for this book, right? And I can't predict you know how things are going to shake out in the future as far as that goes i'm not inclined to create a whole bunch of them right now because part of the point of creating them like i say was to sort of bring those those races up to the supplemental you know race or species levels right as far as um making them really nice options goes and i'd be afraid if i started doing species feats for other non-core rulebook species that we would end up with um the, the same problem, right? That okay, well, you know, ah, the core rulebook species have these species feats. Oh, but in this book, there are species feats for these re species, so that sort of takes away that advantage. I'm not gonna say we won't do any in the future, but it's not a high priority. That makes sense. Now, <clears throat> Darth Obi Wan had a question about a specific uh, species feat. He said, I "I'm curious what the thinking was behind the Jedi heritage species feat for the Twi'lek, page sure. thirty-four." And I know that the, I, you, you know this has gotten more hoopla than any of the others. Sure. Um, I understand its benefits are somewhat mitigated by the wisdom penalty Twi'leks get, but the Twi'lek is hardly unique in having a wisdom penalty. And I have to say that when I hear the word Twi'lek, I finish it with dancing girl <laughs> or major domo or crime lord a lot more readily than I do Jedi. Um, to me, this one seems to be there to fill space for the Twi'lek. Um, you know, so could you do a feat for all the non-human major races from Core? Uh, so the interesting thing is, this is actually not here just to fill space. In fact, it was one of the first ones that I designed. Um, part of it is because I felt like the, the Twi'lek are an, a, a very iconic species, and I didn't feel like they were getting they were getting used as much uh, as they should have been. Right? Like I very rarely saw um, feedback from people playing Twilight characters talking about how advantageous it was to have a charisma bonus, but then a wisdom penalty, right? And it mm. seems when you look at the Twilight, you're like, oh, plus two charisma. That's great. That adds to my use of the force. Oh, minus two wisdom. I'm going to get one less force power per force training feat, right? And that It's sort of this, uh, like, this trick. It's like, haha, charisma bonus, entice you. Oh, wisdom penalty make you, you know, suck more as a Jedi, right? So um, part of this is to correct that sort of bait-and-switch that's created there. Part of it is to sort of improve um, the species as a whole. And then part of it is because we're seeing a lot more Twi'lek in, in the Jedi and Force user role in Star Wars media, right? Um, yeah. I think classically, when you look at the Twi'lek, they're right. You think Dancing Girl, Major Domo, etc., right? But as time has gone on, and even since the release of the Saga Edition Core Rulebook, we've seen... Um, Twilight Jedi and Force users rise to much more prominence in Star Wars media, right? With the legacy comics and the Clone Wars and such as that. It's sort of that their their role in the in the Star Wars universe is getting redefined in a lot of ways by the fact that we have so many characters showing up that are both a Twilight and B 
force using, right? So yeah. it's also an, an attempt to address the changing uh, nature of the iconic Twi'lek. Makes sense. Good sense. Now, to, to more general feats, um, Dave, I think uh, Z3D had a question, did you not? Z3D, as a matter of fact, had a question about the intent of the Imperial Military Training feat. Page 29, for those of you following along at home. And NPC design. And in a way, about the other similarly styled feats. <clears throat> so he asks, is this feat intended to give, to be given to rank and file characters, special or elite troops, or to your big bad evil guys? I ask, as it seems in the films, the majority of the Imperials are easily distracted or swayed by the heroes. Um... <sighs> For this one, I will say that a lot of times, in fact, I'm going to say most times, we design these feats for player use. Mm. And when I look at, okay, let's say I'm playing in a campaign where I have Imperial military training, right? Imperial military training is all about discipline and, you know, rigid order of battle, et cetera, et cetera. And that to me sort of translated into, um, a sharper, more focused mind, right? And so I was thinking about what would I would want as a player who had Imperial military training and not necessarily thinking about, you know, okay, what impact is this going to have on PCs and such. At the same time, well, yes, you can make the argument that Imperial officers and such are often uh, distracted. That's why most of them don't have this feat, right? Uh, however, when you think about, okay, I want to represent, you know, more disciplined troops, this is a nice feat to give them to, you know, benefit to, to keep them from being basically negated by mind-affecting effects. Um, that's the, the thing, though, right? Most feats are designed for players, right? They're, they're not designed for NPCs specifically. So I usually take the approach of, okay, I am playing, an, for example, an Imperial character. What would benefit me and what makes flavorful sense, right? And then, you know, if you're the Game Master and you're creating your NPCs and you look at an ability like this... You don't have to give them the feat, right? It, it's sort of the same. You don't have to have levels of the Jedi class to be a Jedi argument, right? You don't have to have Imperial military training to be trained by the Imperial military, right? It's an option right. we put out there. And if you don't, if you want your NPCs to be more on the you know gullible target of mind affecting powers kind of spectrum, that's okay, right? Just don't give them the feat. Um, it is good, I think, for if you want to create. Villains, especially, and particularly adventure villains mm -hmm. that are non-force-using Imperial officers, right? Um, I, I think of your really, your, your Tarkins, right? Your, your yeah. very powerful, very strong-willed, very focused uh, individuals. The, this is a great feat to give those characters so that when the inevitable combat comes around and your players start throwing around, you know, mind-affecting effects, you can be assured that... It, unless they are very persistent, your Imperial officer villain will stay and contribute whatever it is he's going to to the encounter, right? I, I think that that's a good way to use that if you want to. And then, you know, for your regular Imperial officers, just don't include it. No, or do. Sense. Or do. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it makes sense. I think I think your mileage may vary, but uh, it's interesting. In, in the Echo Base, uh, Sterling said, "You know, this is a good answer." And much the same could be said for the the fatal hit feat from the Legacy Era campaign guide. You know, which is one of you know where basically when you when you drop them to zero, they're dead. You know, no saving allowed. You know, really, is that something you're going to want to give to an NPC? You know, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But it's certainly it's designed for PC use, of course. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, 
moving uh, kind of ahead to some talents, um, Ikboigigan uh, had a question about the ambush specialist talent. Are you sure that's page. not IC Moigigan or Ikmoigigan? As per his last bumper, I believe it is Ikmoigigan. Oh, okay. Adolf. <laughs> yes. Um, he had a question about the ambush specialist talent on page 28. He says, the first part of this talent lets you activate feats and talents that normally only trigger in a surprise round or in the first round of combat if you're not surprised. Right. This is perfectly this is perfectly clear to me. The second part of the talent is where I get a bit confused about the intent. It it lets you activate a cool ability called Prime Target as a free action during the surprise round. Well, would the second part of the talent trigger in the first round of combat if you're not surprised? Yeah, uh in fact it's supposed to work that way, right? It's like, okay, you treat, you know, surprise round effects as though the first round was a surprise round, even if it's not. And here's right. a surprise round effect, right? And it's like, okay, you can use this during a surprise round, or since the rest of this talent says you can use it on the first round of combat, if you're not surprised, if there's no surprise round, then you can use it then as well. Okay, I, I actually had to be sense. I had to be very careful with the way this one was worded because I knew what I wanted to accomplish mechanically with these mecha- with, with these mechanics, but the trick was not every combat's going to have a surprise round. And in fact, in, in my legacy ca- era campaign, uh, there are very rarely surprise rounds just because of the nature of the way I've designed the adventures and such. Right. So I was thinking, okay, if someone's running a campaign like the one I am, what's going to be, you know, what's going to be useful to them. So I had to be very careful how to word this one so that it's useful all the time, but also gets a little bit more useful in the surprise round. It was a little bit of a delicate balancing act. That makes sense. Yeah. It, it solves a problem. I had actually, I was playing a game on Friday, uh, a little one shot, and I had one of my players uh, complain. He's like, "Man, I want to take sneak attack, but it, it just, you know, it's 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 not like he's he's used to third edition D and D." So he says, "You know, it's it doesn't it's not automatic if they haven't acted yet in combat." I'm like, "No, not unless it's a, it's a surprise round." This really adds some validity to that type of you know for for the cost of a talent, not bad. Well, while we're in the ambush specialist talent or the ambusher talent tree, um, I I want to. I want to kind of skip ahead a question or two to, to tackle a question in that vein. Babs had a couple questions that he wanted to bring in, and, and one of them while we're there is he says, I absolutely love the Ambush Specialist talent tree, and it's quite powerful. He had a question about the Keep It Going talent, also, also on page 28. Um, from this tree, which allows a character to select a new prime target once he downs his current prime target, does this talent activate when an ally downs the specialist prime target? Uh, no, it is when you do, um, which in hindsight maybe could have been you or your ally, um, but as written, no, it's it's just it's just you. But you don't think it's too terribly, I mean, if somebody wanted to house rule that, I, I mean, it's not probably not going to break things too terribly much? No, I don't think so. Um, the, the intent here is that, you know, we want, or we want you using these series of talents to pick one target and keep wailing on them, right? Because that's that's what you do. You you jump them and then you take them down and then you move on to the next guy, right? It's sort of a, a focused fire kind of situation. And I, I as I recall, now remember I've been done with this book for for months and months and months. So I'm having to right. like throw my brain back to like January or whatever, right? Not quite that far. But uh so my thinking at the time was I don't want people to use this ability designate their prime target, and then you know, basically say, okay, well, I've got this um, morale bonus coming from somewhere else, right? So what I'll do is 
I'll put my prime target on that guy, but then I'll go attack this guy over here while I've got this morale bonus com- coming from somewhere else, and then switch back over to this other guy, right? Like I, I, I wanted you to focus on one guy and try and take him down, right? Um, whether yeah. or not that's successful or not is, you know, I, I, I guess if you're playing this and one of your allies takes the guy down, it's probably not too crazy to say that you can move your your prime target to someone else, but. As written, like I say, it, it's intended for you to take the target down. And it's it's also kind of a reward, right? It's like, okay, you know, when you take your target down to zero hit points, you, you get to, you know, move it over to someone else. So it's like, okay, you really want to be the guy taking people down. Mm. Mm. Makes sense. Okay. Well, Dave, why don't you hit us up with Bab's first question, since I okay. skipped ahead and tackled That's this. All right. This is about Killian Rangers. <clears throat> sure. Um, why can a Killian Ranger only use his shield deflect once per round while the Jedi can use deflect, which uses the same exact mechanics multiple times per round? Is this some sort of Jedi bias? Well, no, it's because Jedis are cool that way, Babs. Come on. <laughs> well, that is part of it, right? I mean, and, and part of it is a Jedi bias, right? It's like, okay, we're going to give this guy ability similar to what the Jedi do, but we don't want him to do it exactly the same as the Jedi. Otherwise, why play the Jedi, right? And and this all sort of actually ties back into the lightsaber, right? When you think about the way the lightsaber works, lightsaber actually does like one die of damage less than a heavy blaster pistol, right? But the advantage of the lightsaber is a ignoring damage reduction, but more importantly, the things that you can do with the lightsaber. And one of those things that you can do is deflect things. So, basically... We don't want this. To, we don't want any kind of deflect abilities like that to ever outclass what the Jedi can do, right? It's if the Jedi, if you can do what the Jedi does, but not have to use a lightsaber, right? Not have to take the lower damage output. Why would you ever use the lightsaber, right? And, and yeah, I mean, story-wise, you would you would only use the lightsaber. But basically, what I didn't want to happen was people saying, "Okay, I'm going to take the Force sensitivity feat, and I'm going to take this one talent here." Um, I, I guess you'd probably have to have. Uh, shield gauntlet defense first so take these two talents and wear a shield gauntlet and run around with a blaster rifle right and basically be like okay block block shoot shoot block block shoot shoot right and and effectively gain the benefit of the deflection without having to sacrifice things like the jedi does makes sense now also in line with the the killian ranger talent tree which is on page 37 for those of you following along by the way um, Raving Dork, the He's infamous back. Raving Dork. He's back. New and He's improved. I uh, had a question about uh, the talent tree in general. He said, I wanted to ask about the Killian Ranger Force tradition. Um, on page 37, under the membership section, uh, the last sentence reads, the candidate will only be accepted if there are fewer than five current Killian Rangers, squires, rangers, and lords combined. Is that like the old Sith tradition's rule of two? Am I, am I reading it right? There were only ever five official Killian Rangers in the galaxy at one time? What's the deal here? Uh, well, yes. So according to the lore established in the original Rebellion Era source book for the um, the first iteration of D20 Star Wars, there are in fact only five at a time, right? Um, the idea behind this is that if you're playing in the Rebellion Era and you're a Force user, there has to be so few of you that you've escaped the Emperor's notice. Uh, and that's why you know we don't actually mention any names or, or offer any Killian Ranger NPCs is because we want this to be the sort of small, intimate organization that the DM can take and, you know, 
say, okay, you're a member of this organization and, and do whatever he wants with those NPCs, right? It's, 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 that's why it's not super fleshed out. Um, so yeah, there, there are an extremely small number of them and I think that's okay, right? Like we've got a lot of force traditions in the game right now that are, oh, there's, there's hundreds of them scattered throughout the outer rim or, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? It's okay for, for the, for force traditions to be different, right? It's okay for them to be, you know, more common than others. And especially because the Killian Rangers were actually originally created for the Star Wars role-playing game, right? Mm. Um, they were created to be something that your heroes could, could take part in and not have a whole bunch of baggage built up around them. So I wanted to honor that by not building up a whole bunch of baggage around them in this book and, and uh, basically bring it in and say, okay, we're, we're going to leave this just like it was lore-wise, um, eight years ago when the Rebellion Era source book came yeah. out yeah. and give you the updated mechanics with our modern design sense, uh, modern design sensibilities and still let this be sort of your private little sandbox. Well, that makes good sense. And to follow that up, uh, RD says the, the parenthetical text, getting very specific, of course, uh, doesn't seem to add up too well in that it refers to three classes of Killian Ranger all in the plural. So if there are squires, rangers, and lords, then that means at least two of each, which is six, not five. Is he just being way too literal with the pluralities or, or what? Um, it is, that is an interesting reading. Uh, <laughs> the way I would read it instead is that there is a constantly shifting hierarchy amongst them, right? Where sometimes there might be two lords, a ranger, and two squires, or two lords, two rangers, and a squire, or you know, three squires, two rangers, and no lords, right? I mean, the idea, right, is that this is a an organization that you can do whatever you want with it, create whatever NPCs you want for them, and and run with it, right? So. It is speaking in generalities about an organization whose membership has changed many times, likely, over the last however long it is they've existed. That makes excellent sense to me. In RD, it should make sense to you, too. Uh, but I'm sure we'll find some other um, uh, spelling hang-up to, to question you with later on. Yeah. <laughs> Why is the page white on page 74? <laughs> because it's white on page 73. Nice. Boom. Boom. All right. Stat blocks, of course. We oh. Can't, we, can't, we can't talk about a book without asking questions about stat blocks. Of right? course not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dave, hit us up. IRL Potato wants to know, why the hell does Admiral Akbar have armored defense? First, <laughs> not, I, have, not, not, I, I have a different question. Does his username mean he is a potato in real life? Oh, yeah, or does it mean... He's a potato who's a big fan of the Indy Racing League. Neither. He's Irish. He's Irish. I was going to say the best part. He lives in Dublin. So <laughs> He's an Irish potato. He's an Irish potato, which is even better. So, But, he's, but it's IRL. So I think it's Ireland. Ireland potato. Oh, Yo, right. Ireland. Yeah. If there's an L in land, isn't there? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. This is why I'm a, I'm a designer and not an editor. Well, that's okay, you know. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so I've dodged the question enough. <laughs> Why does Admiral Akbar have armored defense? Because it's a trap. We see. It's a trap. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Uh, at some point, I I'm sure these talent or these uh, stat blocks got developed. Like I, in fact, I vaguely recall the 
the talents or the this particular stat block getting altered. And um, also another thing that happens sometimes is simple copy paste errors and stuff like that. It's it's just it's a mistake in the sense that it's effectively a dead talent for him because he's not wearing any armor. Um, but it it shouldn't affect the way that it actually plays. Very nice. I heard an interesting uh, interesting thing online. Somebody suggested, well, Akbar, you know, being an admiral, it's it highly possible. Although, you know, well, not highly possible, but possible that he could at some point end up in a spacesuit. And if that's the case, he wants to be able to retain his heroic level. I'm like, oh, okay, that. Well, okay. You know, I can do backflips all day to try and justify <laughs> things like that. The fact of the matter is, there's always going to be things that slip through the cracks, right? I, I think we've had this discussion before that, of course, uh, as of- as fantastic as of a designer as I am, he said <laughs> uh, sar- sarcastically, I do in fact make mistakes, and it's just something that I that I overlooked. So I apologize. I would be happy to refund your money for those two words. And uh, let's see here. In a book of a couple hundred thousand words that cost thirty four ninety five, I think I owe IRL Potato like an eighth of a cent or something. So next that's time cool. I see him, I will hook him up with that. See, and with the exchange rate, that's you know next that's, to nothing. Yeah, no, right? So uh, next to nothing. So so what's is the, what is the cent equivalent in euros? I believe they have they have. Ooh, that's that's pence. a good question. Is it pence? Well, it's it's point oh one euro. Okay. Okay, so they just do like percentages of euros. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so I think I owe IRL potato like point zero zero eight euros. Easy, easy peasy. All right, moving on. Vehicles. One of one of your Star Wars passions. Um, Markian uh, has a starship question, in particular on page one thirty nine, the YE four Imperial gunship is listed as a gargantuan space transport. Uh, this gives it the stats of a fighter-sized craft. Uh, Reflex Defense of 22 shows this. But it has the cargo and weaponry of a colossal-sized ship. Was gargantuan space transport a mistake, or, or is this a new classification of ships? And if so, for Pete's sake, what are the rules, the base stats for a craft of this size category? He's, he's clearly very excited. Relax, please. Well, so first I'll ask, what do you think is the answer to this question, Chris? Me? Yes. Oh, I, I, I would I would like to know what you think I'm going to say. I think you're going to say, oh, man, you see, you're putting me in a pickle, dude. <laughs> I'm like only guessing what you're what, what, oh, no. I, I think you're going to say that um, uh, that that the starships in the book aren't designed based on a, a, a general overall design principle. They're designed as they come. Which is kind of one of the rules we've talked about earlier. You know, there's no overarching starship design rules, um, hot off the presses, and so that that would kind of fall into this category. Is that somewhere in the ballpark? Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's what you get for asking me. I God, know. I, no, I'm teasing you. Um, my first inclination is to say that gargantuan is probably uh, a mistake, uh, and that it was intended to be colossal originally. Uh, just because if you've seen the YE-4 gunship, uh, in fact, I think there's a picture of it in the Game Mastering chapter, which I don't happen to have handy. Um, but if you... Oh, yeah, it's on page uh, 73. Uh, what I think happened is that uh, due to the angles of the ships in that, it looks like the YE-4 gunship is uh, starfighter-sized, when uh, in actuality, it's a little bit bigger than that, right? Uh, it is... It's a... It's a ship that it's 
obviously reminiscent of a Lambda craft sh- Lambda class shuttle in a lot of ways, uh, designed by Sonar Fleet Systems as well. Uh, so I would be inclined to think that it was originally intended to be gargantuan, but maybe its size got changed uh, during editing when someone saw the art and uh, didn't realize that there was a perspective issue there. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I mean, even at, even at gargantuan size instead of colossal size, um, it's an Imperial ship that is pretty rare as well, so I I wouldn't... I wouldn't be afraid to leave it at that size. Um, it's questionable whether it should be Colossal or Gargantuan, but I don't think it actually hurts anything for that individual ship to be at that size. And see, that's the trick when you when you end up with trying to bolt a rule system onto an existing universe. And you, you mentioned this briefly, is that you can't cover every eventuality, right? So when we're designing the, the rules in Starships of the Galaxy, you know, months and months and months ago, uh, years ago at this point, wow, hard to believe, but yeah, years ago when Starships was being designed, I doubt very seriously that Owen Stevens said, all right, the, the YE-4 gunship was an obscure ship from Star Wars Galaxies, a game that like 30 people played and 15 of them stopped after a week. Uh, what? Okay, we're going to make sure that that fits within this, uh, all right, you know, it, it's just probably a result of um, a, e- either what happened was A, it got changed by accident, or B, whoever the designer was, and I'll be honest with you, I, I can't even remember who designed the section, um, probably thought that it, it should be gargantuan because of its size. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and I can tell you if you give me just one second, uh, we don't actually have a consistent size for the YE-4 gunship. Um, so it's possible that... Gargantuan is actually closer to the right physical size. It just happens to create kind of funky rules interactions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a uh, a good listing on the size of the ship. So uh, it's so, sort of like the whole um, capital ship weapons on the skip ray blast issue, right? Sometimes right. there are going to be things that don't one hundred percent conform to uh, the way that things were, you know created for a different book system. So, yeah, that's total non-answer. The answer is, it might have been one of these two things. That's gold, guys. This is why you win the innies, because I Pure come on here and act non-committal. Heck yes. Pure gold. And you see, this cracks me up, because, of course, see, I'm, I'm buying into it. I'm like, you know, what answer do you think I'm going to give? I'm like, you know what? I, I'm of, And I've said this before. I'm of, I'm of the personal philosophy that I don't think the uh, GM ships, NPCs, beasts, whatever, should use the same design constraints as the players. You know, very similar to, to the 4th edition style. I, I think they're, I'm, I'm a firm belief there being a wall there um, compared to the transparency of prior editions. So I'm fine with that answer. Um, but the answer comes out, you know, the, the reality is we, well, don't really quite know. and That's fine, too. I'm going to stick yeah. with my original answer as, as and, and just that'll make me happy when I go to bed tonight. So. Nice. Perfect. <laughs> so equipment questions. What's your question? Oh, God. Equipment, 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 yeah. equipment. So Raving okay. Dork and Babs both want to know what's up with the gas grenade. Was it really your intent to have the gas grenade deal condition track damage as well as stun damage? Uh, no. The uh, the entry on the what on the table is an error. It should not actually do any damage at all. That oh, well, there you go. That's perfect. Sense. And people have been blowing smoke about this. You know, look, if, if, am, I, am I correct? Text, text always smoke, trumps it. table, right? That is true. That is true. So the text says what it says. 
So is this going to be the episode where you guys just ask me about a whole bunch of things that we got wrong in the book? Because like the last three questions, my answer has been, yeah, boy, we really screwed that up, didn't we? Well, you know. <laughs> well, what's interesting is we didn't write a single one of these questions. Not one. Not one. Yeah. But- so, you know, I, every time a book comes out, right, I always know, okay, here, here, are, the prob- here are the problem spots, right? Here are the, the things that we, that we missed either during editing or whatever. And I usually catch – I would say I catch a good 50% of those before they, uh, they actually come out of the forums. And you guys have hit like three that I sort of knew were coming already. And I was like, God, right in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Well – I've got three more uh, that I'll all kind of that are kind of related here, um, okay. all from all from Raving Dork. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so we, we know the vein they're going to be in, um, uh, and 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 again, you're you're going to hate me from what you just asked, but they're along the same vein. Uh, the the PLX two M page forty nine uh, can be fired in direct mode, heat seeking mode, or gravity activated mode. Uh, first of all, which modes affect which target? Um, mm-hmm. Of which artillery characters, droids, vehicles are mentioned. Also, sure. what action what action is needed to switch between modes? Uh, so I can understand why he has this question. There is a little bit unclear. Basically, um, there are the the modes are listed sort of for flavor, whereas the rules are also listed in the same sentence. Basically, mm-hmm. it's a swift action to change modes, and when you change modes, you designate one of those, right? You, you designate character, droid, vehicle, or artillery, right? And when you do, you're like saying, okay, I'm switching to the mode that will apply a penalty to targets of this type, and then fire, right? So don't worry about the, the whole heat-seeking or gravity-activated mode. That's pretty much pure flavor, right? What actually matters gotcha. is switching over to a mode that... Uh, you know, designates which target takes this penalty, and uh, as with switching between any weapon modes, it's a swift action. Makes sense. Who? Uh, along just to, to run through the rest of this pretty quick. Uh, the miniature proton torpedo launcher, page forty-nine, uh, doesn't have a wait value or a reload time. Any insight? Oh yeah. Um, it does have a wait value. Does it? Yeah. Is he just? List- is he just? Is he just smoke, smoking the crack? It's listed on the table. And it's eight kilograms. Ah, uh, cool. Uh, as for the reload time, it's just standard reload times. I believe we, boy, reloading happens so rarely in my game that I often forget. I think we say uh, reloading a weapon is typically just a swift action, but I'm not 100% positive on that. Yeah, I believe so from core rules, yes. Yeah, like, like I say, actual reloading in combat happens so rarely because most of the time my players are like, okay, we shoot, 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 and then between combats they're like, okay, we reload our weapons, blah, 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 and don't actually worry about the uh, actions required to reload. Cool. Easy peasy. And the last of RD's questions, uh, the SG-4, page 50, uh, a well-designed and interesting weapon. Mm. <laughs> um, firing the blaster underwater or firing the harpoon out of water reduces the range in half. Just to be clear, the halved range would be point-blank 15, short 30, medium 75, yada yada, right? Would it have been easier to say it was just inaccurate when fired, when fired in such a fashion? Why, why the, the half range? Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be the same way, effectively. Uh, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's two ways of saying the same thing, basically. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, I have some internal debate about whether or not it's easier to say having range or inaccurate. Because if I say half range, you look at range, the range table and you cut those values in half. When I say inaccurate, 
right. you don't know what that means off the top of your head, you have to go look in the book and say, oh, this is what this actually means. So uh, I, I think it's debatable which one's actually easier. But yeah, they pretty much mean the same thing. Cool. Sense. Well, Dave, why don't you hit us up with the last of the equipment questions? And this one's, this one's the doozy. This is uh, the Concussion Grenade Mon. Mm-hmm. PLX-2M photosynthesizer. Okay. Miniature proton torpedo launcher. Uh-huh. So, all right. Everyone's basically, we have multiple people generally asking, what's with the power creep on the equipment? These things oh. are so vastly superior to any comparable item for only a nominal credit increase. So what gives where the, uh, where the standard uh, um, incarnation too weak? Or, you know, why wouldn't a player grow for these? So sometimes what happens is that we design things to mimic what we see in the Star Wars universe. And then someti- sometimes um, we design things to that, that, are, that are, like you said, just clearly better because we decided that the thing that came before wasn't good enough, right? It's, it's, sort, of the, um, it's sort of a way to bring a certain type of item up to the level we want it to without having to go back and errata something, right? So we can basically say, okay, you know, we'll provide you with this instead because this actually seems to more accurately model what we want it to and then not have to say, okay, and go back to your old books and change all these things, right? Uh, plus, creating a second item also gives the Game Master a little bit more control over what they allow in their game, right? Um, in the case of uh, some of these, like um, the the PLX2M, for example, I don't think it's necessarily that uh, big of an upgrade. I mean, it is it is powerful, right? But these are also military items. Um, most of these are intended for use in the Rebellion era when military items are restricted to the Empire, basically. Mm. Um, and yeah, it means that if you want to get your hands on these, they are going to be more expensive than just the cost listed. Um, because they are military items. So part of it also takes into account that this is the Rebellion Era book, and we can pretty safely assume that getting one of these things is actually a big deal, right? Uh, it's not exactly my my optimal solution, um, but like I say, it, it in the Rebellion Era, with the Empire being so powerful, uh, it, it alters some of our perceptions about the way... Um, these weapons with military availability actually work in the universe. And yeah, when, when you apply them outside of the rebellion era, it might cause some walkiness. Um, in which case I, like I say, this is sort of why I, I like having it as a separate item rather than eroding the original item, because that way I can say, okay, you know, as, as a DM, I'm like, okay, you can, you can use anything out of the core rule book, but anything out of supplemental books, I need to okay first. Um, that is obviously, like I say, it's not exactly what I would consider an optimal solution, but I, I think with a game like Star Wars, where the eras are effectively campaign settings, we can make some assumptions about the way a game in that setting is going to play and base some things on that. Well, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask the GM to level set equipment at the start of the campaign and, and you know make, make that call. You know, I think that's that's reasonable. Yeah, and and like I say, it, it's it's a it, it it's a combination of lots of different factors, uh, and you know, in some cases, it might be that six months from now, after seeing this in action for a while, I'm like, man, we made that too good, right? 
<laughs> we we need to fix that, right? Believe me, not not above you know reevaluating things. Um, when it went through development, like I said, this was months ago, so I may be forgetting something that I thought about back then. Uh, when it went through development, obviously, you know, decided that it's not bad for the game to have this in the game. So, right, like I say, we we can always reevaluate. That makes sense. A full-on gamer posted an insightful comment in Echo Base. He says, the Rebellion era is, is this military clandestine era. Your cell structure, if you're a rebel, issues your equipment. They don't fill your wish lists. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting that you should talk about that because when we talk about Galaxy War later, uh, I want to talk mm-hmm. about um, military cells and equipment. So remind me to come back to that. Noted. Noted. Making note. Excellent. Well, that that kind of fills up our 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 rebellion era campaign guide questions from the gamer cool. nation. Um, but I had I had obviously a couple fluffy ones that I, I kind of want to ask myself um, okay. before before we before we end up th- that discussion. Um, I I really enjoyed this book, and I know we've talked about various aspects of it. And so I always ask you this, so I'm going to ask you again: Do you have a favorite section in the book, a favorite mechanic, or something that you saw added in this book that you were just just cheesed awesome to get? Yeah, I, I think I can pretty safely say that it's backgrounds. Uh, usually, you know, I have yeah. a lot of different things I can point to, but I really like backgrounds, um, partially because, like I say, I, I've learned a lot about the way that not only you know the games work and games are designed over the course of. I mean, remember, I I design I, I helped uh, guys design and develop the Saga Edition Core Rulebook in the early parts of 2006. Uh, mm-hmm. Saga Edition was in development for almost a year and a half before it actually came out. Um, so in the three and a half years since then, I've, I've learned a whole lot about game design, how the way games are played. And one of those things I've learned is that I think I prefer more flexibility in the games. And, you know, like I say, were I to send a message to myself in 2006, I would probably send a message, message that said, you know what, maybe just get rid of class skills entirely and let people pick, you know, whatever skills they want. Um, and, and like I said, I think the game works fine the way it is, right? And, and we, we've given you some means within the background system to make your character a little bit more flexible and keep people from having to jump through a bunch of hoops to build the character they want, right? Like, if I want to build the soldier that's good, you know, in, in persuasion, right, so that he can be really good with, uh, uh, with... Uh, draw fire, right? And, and basically, is it draw fire? What's the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Draw fire. That had a total, you know, brain meltdown the first thing there. If I want to build a a soldier that's good with draw fire and you know has persuasion as a trained skill and everything, currently I basically have to waste a level and a feat to, to do that, right? A pre background system, system, which you know at first you can say, oh well, yeah, that's obviously the balancing factor, right? But then I started, I mean, like, after, after a while, you start thinking about it, and you say, over the course of my, you know, adventuring career, would I rather have a plus five bonus to, you know, the skill and, and the ability to take skill, uh, skill focus in it and basically be able to use this talent really, really well, or would I rather have that one point of base attack and one feedback? And I think nine times out of ten, that soldier is going to say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be one point less accurate for the ability to draw fire, you know, at, at basically plus ten over what I could before, right? And mm. that's that's just one mechanical way of looking at it, right? So the background system is like, you know what, that that ended up being more of a hoop to jump through than an actual mechanical drawback, right? Whereas um, 
talent selection, for example, is a great example of an actual drawback, right? We, we talk about opportunity costs being a drawback, and it really is. When you only have, you know, let's say 10-ish talents that you're going to pick up over the course of your career, you know, having to decide between one talent or another, that's actually a pretty significant difference, right? Um, yeah. Having to, having to lose one point of base attack and, and a feat, that's, that's less significant, right? Especially the way feats work in Saga Edition. So, um, I think the background system goes a long way to towards letting people build the characters they want to build rather than having to twist and turn and contort. Uh, I also think that the background system goes a long way towards adding some adding some built-in adventure hooks for the player, right? And yes, and yes. I, one, one thing I require my players to do is sketch out a, a very, very basic backstory. I don't want to read your two-page treatise on what your character was doing before the game began, but I do want you to give me a couple of things that I can hang adventure hooks on, right? So uh, to give you a good example, my Monday night D&D campaign, I've got a guy who, he's an escaped prisoner, and I've got a guy who's basically like a wandering swordsman seeking out... Uh, uh, his master's wayward apprentice, and I've got a guy that uh, is this crazy old guy that uh, he's like 60 years old and just started being an adventurer, right? But he's got this history with uh, Wizard's Tower, right? And and I, I I like it when my players have story hooks built into their characters. That lose you guys? No, no, no. We're, we're still no, you're still good. Oh, okay, good. I, I noticed that the uh, chat room crashed. Yeah, right. the chat's been been crashy, crashy. So, so basically, what I wanted to do was create a system that helped people build those adventure hooks into their characters. Because I think when I de- like, I've learned that when I design my adventures based around what my characters want in their so- like their backstories, it it makes it easier to get them invested in the game personally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other trick with designing the background system was that I wanted to make sure that the backgrounds produced a somewhat unusual character twist, right? This is why you can't take your species' home planet uh, as your planet of origin background, right? because the background is something kind of unusual about it. So if you're a Celestine, you can't take the background, right? You have to be a Celestine that was raised on Coruscant, or you have to be a Celestine that was raised on Mon Calamari, or something like that, so that you can basically... You say, okay, why did that happen to my character, right? Like, yeah, I get these mechanical benefits, whatever, whatever. Why did that happen to my character? Oh, well, you know, I was orphaned and raised by another family, or, you know, I I fled, you know, political oppression on my home world, right? And it's just enough for a a game master to pull something out of that for his own adventures. And at the same time, it... I hate to say it's like we're tricking people into creating more interesting characters, but we kind (laughs) of are, right? Or... I mean, I, 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 I don't want it to sound like, you know, we think we're being sneaky or anything like that, because players are perfectly capable of coming up with very interesting backgrounds. Um, this is this is really more for the player that, that you know, is a little more casual, uh, wants a more flexible character, and yet still give the DM something, you know, to hang to hang an adventure on. Well, it makes sense. I, I don't know, man. The the more I play, the more I find that a lot of the newer systems I'm playing, tasting now, that have mechanical ways to provide those hat hooks, for lack of a better term, are, are stuff I enjoy. Things like Spirit of the Century and stuff like that. So, no, I'm I'm all for it. I I I I, I like your ideas and would like to subscribe to your publication. <laughs> well, luckily you can. Ah, luckily I can. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I I really like the background system and. 
Uh, I like the flexibility it provides, and I like that we can let people not jump through hoops to create their characters. And I, I like that the story that comes with your character is is tied into those. Well, sir, um, we have we have some other questions folks asked. They're they're non-rebellion era campaign guide related. Sure. And I didn't know what if you had time to to tackle any of them, or if we wanted to 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 move into talking about some some galaxy at war, or you know, um, do we kind of want to? I can do either one. I, I'll let you pick, man. You're the you're the host of this show. Boom. Okay. Well, Dave, our 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 D20 radio program director. What do you think, man? Should we move into some galaxy at war? Yeah. Yeah, let's go with Galaxy at War, whatever we do have. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to uh, to say that I, I just finished listening to last week's episode um, in the car, like, yesterday afternoon on the way home. And okay. when when you started teasing them with, uh, oh, yeah, and there's <laughs> the stuff that was previewed at Gen Con, and, it's, and, like, you're just about to tell something, and then Dave busts in with, wait, save that for next week. If I had been listening live... I would have like climbed through the computer and because <laughs> that that was terrible. <laughs> well, Dave, uh, I, I I would agree that that was terrible. But you know, hey, hey, you I, brought them all I, back I, now, didn't it? <laughs> the art of the tease. We are the tease, and you know what? It got people listening this week. So, um, you know, you you of course had nothing to do with that. It was just you know right. they wanted to hear what I was going to say. That's the yeah. only reason they're they're, yeah. they're tuning in at all this week. Three hundred and forty six um, of them in Gecko Base right now. God, <laughs> excellent. Well, dude, all right, lay, lay it on us, man. What juicy bits can you give us about Galaxy at War? I, I am so stoked. You were kind enough last time you were on to give us a. A juicy bit about creating full-on cyborgs, you know, like Vader style, Grievous style. Um, wh- what else can you wet our palates with? Sure. Um, so, first of all, if people haven't figured it out yet, then Galaxy at War is basically the spiritual successor to Scum and Villainy. Um, this time focusing on soldiers and warfare as opposed to scoundrels and the criminal fringe. Um, but you're, you can kind of expect a very similar format. Um, we changed a few things up. There are less um, random NPCs in this book. And instead of a sort of a rogues gallery chapter, uh, we have some pretty in-depth information about... Um, like organizations, for example. Um, one of the cool things is that uh, Daniel Wallace actually wrote part of this. I, I know you guys know that name. He wrote the uh, uh, co-wrote the new Essential Star Wars Atlas. Uh, yes. Daniel's been writing role-playing game material for a long time, and um, when I got in touch with him about Galaxy War, I was like, hey, you know, I know that you're Mr. Big Shot reference guy, but would you like to come do some uh, Star Wars work? And uh, he jumped at the chance because we let him sort of flesh out a few things that he wouldn't normally get to focus on on a on a bigger release, which it's kind of interesting that the bigger release books end up having uh, less freedom on what you can cover because you're kind of expected to be the hitting the high points and the essential references. So, yeah. um, so basically, we present some rules for um, joining. Uh, imperial or imperial uh, military organizations in this uh, pretty much based off of the uh, the organization rules in the Force Unleashed campaign guide, uh, but applied to a little bit more generic um, 
uh, organizations. So basically, we have a, a generic military organization that you can, of course, customize as well. But uh, that serves as the basis of our rank system. So we have uh, a rank system that people can pull out and say, okay, everybody's going to be a member of whatever military organization. Here, we're going to use this rank hierarchy. Go, right? It's supposed to be where the Force Unleashed organizations are very zoomed in on those specific ones. It's supposed to be a little more generic and a little more applicable to multiple settings. Um, and then we let Dan write descriptions of a whole bunch of organizations that are basically two-page spreads of pure fluff, right? Pure flavor material that you then lay over the top of those mechanics and, and create your organization, right? Um, and the cool thing is we got to flesh out some some organizations that didn't really have a whole lot and then also go back and touch on some of our favorites and some organizations that you know we had talked about uh, in other books but that were perennial favorites so um, the one I'm most excited about and I think we might be previewing it I, I'm not can, I'm not sure exactly which previews are going to go up uh, which should start going up here in the next week or two um, but uh, my favorite one is an obscure organization that has been mentioned I think like once ever in Star Wars. <laughs> They're called the Sun Guards of Thyrsus. They were mentioned once in the description of a West End Games bounty hunter named Moxon Tark. And it was said that the the Sun Guards were part of the inspiration for the Imperial Royal Guards and then Moxon Tark wore, wore their their armor, right? So we were like, so Dan, we, we've got this like offhand mention, build us an organization. So we let Daniel go crazy and, and write up the complete history and backstory and methodology and rank system for the Sun Guards of Thyrsus. So that's my favorite one because you know me, I'm, I'm in love with obscure uh, West End Games references. So yeah, so that's one of my, nice. my favorite parts of the book. And, you know, it's, it's one of the areas where we actually get to contribute to Star Wars lore. And so I think it was, I think it was pretty, uh, pretty cool. But uh, in general, Galaxy at War is a lot like what you've come to expect from previous books. But it also marks the, what I'm going to call the first of our attempts to make the, the Game Master's job a little bit easier. Um, we, we spent a lot of time early in the product line making it easier to build the kind of characters that you wanted, right? And uh, we hit a lot of campaign guides and stuff like that, but, uh, and, you know, creating new subsystems and what have you. But um, as, as, as good of a job as we did with Saga Edition, and I, and I think we, we definitely, you know, have, have proven to, have, you know, create a system that game masters can can tackle and use i still think there's a lot of areas where we could make it easier on on the game master and i think that um game mastering still has too many barriers uh, between uh, you know between it and the players so uh over the course of really the next like three or four books you're going to see a lot of things included to make the game master's job easier and one thing that we've got in uh, Galaxy at War that I think people are going to like is we've got a little bit more discussion on running location-based adventures, right? Like uh, if you've, you know, I don't think it's any spoiler to talk about the Imperial military installation at the beginning of the first Dawn of Defiance uh, adventure, the Trader's yep. Gambit, right? Um, 
we sort of adapted a lot of the rules that we've come up with for other things into a system for creating location-based adventures. Um, it's uh, it's it's the kind of thing you want to do. Okay, my players are raiding a star destroyer. What do I what do I do? Right, um, and it it's intended to make it easier for a for the the game master to improvise on the fly, and b to come up with like appropriate challenges without having to spend a whole ton of time writing stat blocks. Right. So, for example, we've got a lot of information on. Okay, you know. You're on a Star Destroyer, your players are like level 15, and you want this to be an appropriate adventure for them. So here's how you design the interior of the Star Destroyer. Here's how you populate it with encounters that are, you know, of the right level that you want, right? And then here's how you determine how hard it is to slice into the computers and how um, dangerous the, the security countermeasures are and things like that. Basically designed to let game masters run location-based adventures quickly and wow. without a huge amount of prep time, right? So that instead of saying, okay, I need to stand out an entirely new automated weapon system, it's like, no, here's what you know. Here's the kind of attack bonus it should have. Here's the kind of damage it should do. Here's the kind of effects it should have. Here's how often you should find them, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, generally, we want to give game masters places where they can um, reduce their prep time. Uh, prep time is a commodity that some game masters have a lot of and some have very little and if you have a lot of it then stat up things to your heart's content we wanted to sort of address the concerns of those game masters that had less time to run the game and like me I like I work at a game company, right? We, we, we design and play role playing games for our jobs, right? And even still like prep time is is a precious commodity for me and I I just work a 9 to 5 job right so if if a game designer at Wizards of the Coast has limited prep time that I know that all those guys out there with much tougher jobs or or, or those guys you know playing I, I saw someone mentioned earlier in the chat room people playing role playing games overseas people in the armed forces right like I know those guys don't have a whole lot of time to sit around and make up stats right so anytime I can provide them with new things to make their games run better and smoother and faster that's that's something I, I'm interested in exploring so this book has a whole chapter. It's called basically the Bases and Battle Stations chapter, right? Which is like military bases and starships, like capital ship interiors and stuff like that. Basically just a uh, a whole chapter on everything you need to, to, to know to run adventures set in locations. Like in... in military-esque locations, but it really can be applied to a, a whole wide swath of, of location-based adventures. That was you guys? No, you got me. I um, I have a feeling that Chris, Chris just died. Oh, Chris threw a shoe. Again, can you believe it? Well, let me hit you up with a couple of non-campaign-related questions. Sure. So... First, Jawas ate my Jedi, actually, sent in not necessarily a question, but a sort of a, a thank you note. I just wanted to thank Rodney for taking his own precious time to visit us here on the podcast and thank him for doing his best to answer all of our questions. And uh, I'm sure everyone will ask the questions I want answered. So thank you, Rodney. You rock. 
You should be named Supreme Master GM Rodney Thompson. Hats off to you and your hardworking team. So how about I that? really appreciate that. And Elias Windrider comes up with this awesome question right here. How did you get to be so awesome? <laughs> I I am not awesome. Awesome. So one of my favorite comedians is Bill Ingvall. I'm not sure if you know who Bill Ingvall is, but uh, he's definitely one of my favorites. And he's got this bit where he talks about how the word awesome is misused. And something that is awesome inspires awe or wonder. And if you've ever met me, I would inspire neither awe nor wonder, but perhaps revulsion or pity. So, Okay. Yeah. But I appreciate that. Cool. Uh, I don't know. I think we have. How do you how do you answer a question? Yeah, I I don't know. I you know <laughs> you do your best and you exercise humility, which you just did. I think we have Chris back, or do maybe we, we don't. <laughs> I thought we did. Skype is just you know Skype is just being a butthole again. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, exactly. So you know with that, I can right. talk about more Galaxy at War if you'd like. All right. Let's do it while I try to get Chris back, if you can give us any more. Sure. Uh, let's see here. What shall I tell you about? All right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask the chat room to pick a number from 1 to 224, and the first two people to produce them, I will tell you what's on those pages. Okay, we got 66 and 42. Oh, sorry, guys, 66 and 42 uh, won it. So uh, I should, You know what? I should just be prepared to come on the show and tell you what's on those pages. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. Page 66 uh, has the start of, uh, well, it, it's right in the middle of our equipment and vehicle section, and uh, you will find information on the Corona-class armed frigate, which is the uh, information on, if anybody's seen the Clone Wars animated series, uh, the large capital ships used by the Weequay pirate Hondo Onaka and his pirate fleet, uh, among other things. So, yeah, the the book is basically chock full of different um, little bits and pieces from the Clone Wars animated series, uh, and which, by the way, I, I like I love completely independently of uh, my obligations as a Star Wars licensee. Uh, so I, I think people that have been liking the Clone Wars animated series will like what we've got in this book. Uh, we also have some stuff from the Force Unleashed uh, video game that we didn't get to get into the Force Unleashed campaign guide uh, that finally make their way into the game here. Nice. Cool. Hey, Chris is back. Hey, Chris yeah. is back. Skype is ticking me off. I could hear every word you guys are saying. It just wasn't uh, picking up my... Uh, yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, it wasn't hearing me. So I restarted. I see. And I heard, I heard you were explaining something, or you, you had the, the random page pick, which makes me I did, I did. And of course, uh, you know what's going to happen there. 66 and 42 are going to be the two, always. Yep. Well, so 42 uh, is actually uh, in the equipment chapter. Uh, th- these are pretty, pages pretty close together, so it's all in the same chapter, uh, where we have a cool new weapon. It's not really a weapon. It's called the Tactical Tractor Beam. It sort of looks like a, an E-Web cannon, uh, except it's a more finesse-based tractor beam. Uh, uses mechanics similar to those used by the uh, ATCT, I believe, in the Force Unleashed campaign guide, yeah, yeah. which was used for construction. Um, so we've got a uh, we've got uh, a section that includes a personal version of that um, that the Droid Army uses to quickly build um, 
uh, fortresses and walls in uh, and during the Clone Wars. So nice, nice. Yeah. Okay, I've got a so. Speaking of what you said, you you and if you were a listener, you would you would have uh, or a normal listener, you you would have crawled through the the computer wires to strangle my Indeed. throat yesterday. Um, talk talk to me about talk to me about anticipate movement because when I okay okay first of all as a sidebar, am I correct that you you created the the characters for Murder on the Executor? Uh, sort of. Um, Patrick Stutzman, who wrote the oh yeah adventure, he, did, he did the mod he did he, a fantastic job right. yeah. Right, he wrote the module, and he created the characters originally. I developed them, and basically took the ones he created, and went back and created a and, and added in some mechanics from uh, both the Rebellion Era campaign guide and Galaxy at War. Uh, I think you probably noticed that we used backgrounds for those. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that that was brilliant. first of all, Stutzman. If if you're listening, man, fantastic mod. Um, it got nothing but high praise at Gen Con this year, and I know several people that are in Echo Base right now actually ran it with me, and we had a blast. Yep, um, Stutzman, who's going to be on our podcast in two weeks. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, or or not, being that I've never met him. <laughs> we'll get we'll get Joe on that. He can get he can get you know Gandhi on a podcast. Apparently, so. Um, <laughs> all right. So everyone's talk of all these cool, amazing abilities. People were just jaw- slack jawing about anticipate movement, which is this noble talent. Yep. Um, t- tell us, tell us about anticipated movement, yeah, or if you can, I can. Uh, we revealed it during the adventure settlement. Event uh, anticipated movement basically says that uh, once per round, uh, as a reaction to an enemy of your while in your line of sight moving. So basically, anytime an enemy you see moves once per round as a reaction, you let one of your allies move up to their speed as a free action. So basically. When you take this talent once per round, you get to give your allies an extra move, like uh, let them move extra. Um, but you can t- it has no prerequisites, uh, and you have to rely on your enemies moving as well. Still, this has to be one of the coolest noble talents. Yeah, I mean, blah, drool, yeah, big, big sloppy drool. I do like it, um, and you know, one of the goals of Saga Edition was to increase movement, and then we went and added a whole bunch of things into the game that were like, oh, when you make a full attack action, then blah happens, right? It's like, oh, great, <laughs> we, we started out with this very mobile game and added a whole bunch of stuff in, so you want to stand in one place, right? Or like, oh, when you aim, or when you don't do this, that. So this is sort of an effort to put something pretty saucy into the game, make you want to take a noble level, right? And then at the same time, keep people actually moving around the battlefield. So nice. Yep. Nice. Now, one other thing, if I could ask you about from the book uh, sure. that was previewed in the uh, in in Murder on the Executor, I love playing skillful characters and I mm-hmm. love playing techie characters as well. And the the tech in the adventure had this awesome, uh, awesome feat called Mission Specialist. Yes. <laughs> I, like, I like the sound of that. Yes. To tell, it's, it's my land of Calrissian. Yes. <laughs> Can you, but can uh, can you do it with a with a Colt forty five? Yeah. <laughs> tell us about mission specialist, man, if you can. Yeah, there's actually quite a few feats in this book that deal with skills. Um, basically, one of the things that I realized when we were working on this book was that um, there are a lot of times, and especially in a military campaign, where you're 
players are going to be fulfilling specific missions where they're going to have to all do certain skill checks. And I, I'm really thinking of things like climb and jump and swim. And, mm-hmm. you know, basically when, when I think of like these military missions and stuff, I think about, uh, you know, when the Republic commandos get dropped behind enemy lines, that they make their way through, through the jungle, past all these obstacles, and then finally inside, right? Or, or you know, okay, we've got, we got a stealth mission where everybody has to be sneaky. So I wanted to put some some feats, especially into the game, that made it easier for a group to perform similar skill checks without everyone having to spend skill train skills on uh, less used skills, right? So that when you got around to the time where it's like, okay, you know, we've got we've got a mission where we've got to swim, you know, everyone's like, ah, oh, damn, I wish we'd you know wasted a, a skill training on that one, right? So right. mission specialist is a pretty cool feat, which I like. That's like basically when you're trained in a skill, you can take this feat for that skill, and any allies that aren't trained get a plus two competence bonus to the skill. So basically you make your, your friends better at skills they're not trained in that you are by providing them with advice. This is basically so that, okay, the guy that trained in climb, he's going to get over this wall fast and, and well. Those guys on his team that aren't trained in climb, they're not going to cause the adventure to come to a screeching halt because they can't make a DC-10 climb check, right? right, um, right. I know a plus two bonus is not exactly huge, but it's it's nice when... As a player, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be the guy that takes climb because I want to be the very physical guy. I'm going to train in that, and I'm going to take this so that you know my other buddies that, that maybe aren't going to be quite as good at that can still get some benefit out of it and get just that little bit of an edge. Makes sense. Makes good sense. Dude, I, yeah, I, I loved it, and it was, it was fun. It, it, I, think, I think it's just a fun idea. The idea also of, of having a scout... Uh, be you know something like mission specialist perception or stealth, where they yeah. can you know allow their whole party to move better, um, or perhaps even mission specialist initiative. Very nice. Yeah, the stealth is one where I really felt it was important to have a feat like this because, frankly, you can basically derail an entire adventure with okay, you guys have to sneak into this fortress, and then they get in there, and the one guy fails a stealth check, and it's like oh well. Guess now we're having a fight instead of this cool sneaking scene. So, right. uh, you know, I, I thought that was kind of a, a neat way to do it. And then we also have some feats in here for basically if everyone specializes in a particular kind of skill, you can take the skill to reflect that your team, okay, you know what? Your team, you're a stealth team, right? So you take this feat and everyone else t- takes this feat and all of you gets, you know, get a little bit benefit above and beyond what you would normally get. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. Cool. Cool beans. I am I am so excited. And uh, gosh, uh, Galaxy at War comes out, uh, what, the, the, for the 15th, the 17th? I think it's the 17th. Let's, let's see here. No, it would if be the 15th. A, yeah, it's Tuesday. Tuesday. It's the 15th. Yeah. Tuesday, yeah. the 15th. God, yeah. So if you guys have not pre-ordered it yet, you should get down to your friendly local gaming stores and do so. Um, or, of course, if you are of the interweb persuasion, you know, hey, get online. Wahoo. I should also point out that Galaxy of War has a full-length adventure in it uh, that I wrote, actually. Um, it's nice. the first adventure I've written. Nice! For a book. That that alone is a massive selling point. So when you say it's like Scum and Villainy, you're not lying. Nope. Very nice. Very nice. Well, the Sad Pandas music is coming up, which means we're going to move into the post-show fairly soon. 
and hopefully we can ask, ask a, a question or two more there. But um, Rodney, I want to again thanks for, for taking the time to come on and uh, and talk to us about about Rebellion Era. Um, share with us some of the Galaxy at War. As always, we greatly appreciate your time and uh, what you devote to, to this cast and to the, the fans who listen to it. Thank you, sir. Uh, you know, guys, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy coming on the show. You're always welcome. Absolutely. And tune in next week. <laughs> as we have a... I think we're going to have a GM roundtable with Sam Whitwer and some of the guys from his group. Mm-hmm. That is the current plan. And so that should be fun. And yeah, I do like the sad panda music, Ganthet, so... <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is because that's the way you roll here on the Order 66 podcast. But don't go away because we've got post-show and then post-post-show. Actually, we just have post-show. <laughs> so we're coming up on two good hours night, and we need to wrap Dave this up. Nation. That's right. Good night and good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Rodney and peace, love, and good gaming. I need to thank Alex, Trevor, and the 14 people we thanked off the top of the show for being Reds on the forums. And I'll say keep them dice rolling. Hello, I'm Aaron Alston, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. I am Michael Yates. And I am Jody Applegate. From Gamer Concepts. And we never listen to the Order 66 podcast. This is Green X Lantern, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. This is Joe Kell, and I never listen to the Order 66 broadcast. D20 Radio, where gamers roll www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at starwars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. Okay, post show time. Daydreaming. Ah, run grin and your drum. I want to bang on it all day too. I want to bang. I love that music. It's so funny. <laughs> all right, so music. let me tell you about Champions Online first before we get oh, back into other dear. stuff. Okay, so last week you told us all that Champions Online sucked balls. Yeah, it, no kidding. You totally guaranteed that you will never ever be sponsored by Champions Online. By the way, pretty much. Yeah, Cryptic. Uh, Cryptic actually uh, cut off our sponsorship completely after that episode. <laughs> And um, no, actually, I'm here to say that it lives. Um, it will live on my computer for for quite some time because I found a class that I finally like, which is the Gadgeteer, which is really fun. It's a really fun little utility class. And dude, listen to you being all like, "Oh, I found I, I found a class I will like." L- listen to this. Listen, this fool comes up to my desk 
what what Thursday I think and he's yep. like okay everything I said about about this game I, I was totally wrong the game totally rocks I changed my opinion of it 100% it's so non-repetitive it's great it's like the best MMO I've ever played in my life I, I, I'm mm. dead serious these I, are the man's words I like, don't believe be all I, I don't coming off like this I don't believe I ever said it's the best MMO I ever played in my life you were damn close you were sitting there just hailing its praises to anyone who would listen oh my god and we work in an IT field there's geeks aplenty all around with their MMO ears perked up oh man yeah you had a captive audience for about 10 minutes uh, oh okay whatever you say <laughs> what a, yeah you you were my captive audience okay so basically, yeah, here's here's the deal. I overreacted a little bit quickly. Anyway, there's a lot of content in the game, which I actually like. Um, and now it will be very repetitive if you're an altaholic. Kind of like me and Chris. Yeah, because you have to do the same stuff over again as you go through the, the game, but... All things considered, I found a good, I found a cool class, and then I went back and I made another one that looks like a Sith because all his uh, powers are red and it, it emanates like a like a lightsaber, like a red lightsaber, which is really kind of like an energy sword. And so I have Darth, Darth Storm. So yeah, Darth Storm. Storm, yes. So you guys that want to be in the Order of Sixty Six Guild, by the way, that was up and running during pre pre-release back on the 28th or so of August. We had it running day one. Nice. Yep, and uh, so if you guys want to be in the guild, all you got to do is pop over to the forums and put your Champions Online uh, you know, account name in there, and we will get you an invite sent out. We need a character, you know, you know how it works, character at account name, and we'll invite your character, your tunes in there. So. Nice. Hey, so can I jump in real quick? Yeah. Okay, so I, want, I need to change the subject entirely. Uh, so on the podcast this week, I, I totally forgot about this. On the podcast, you mentioned that you got the powder blue, the first transport is away shirt. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So the interesting thing about that is the art for that was designed by Jeff Carlisle, who is not only a good friend of mine, but also does a lot of art for the Star Wars role-playing game. He does a lot of ship art that you've seen yes, and also yes. for D&D as well. So I'm, I met him last year at Gen Con. Yeah, uh, Jeff is a super cool guy, and he is a uh, a good friend of mine. And uh, yeah, that's a great shirt. <laughs> that's awesome. No, it, it's a great shirt. I've, I've I wore it to uh, Brev's the other day, and I thought they were going to bust a gut. They they were just laughing so hard. That, uh, that's great. Awesome. The Very first cool. transport is away. The yeah. first transport is away. Yay. Dude, Rodney, we missed you at Gen Con, man. We missed you. Yeah. Mr. Yeah, I, I know. I I would have liked to have gone, but A, I got my convention digs out of the way with Origins, and B, I was gone more this summer than I was actually there at Wizards. Uh, so. so who accepted like, the award on the on behalf of, uh, well, I guess what, Best Cartography was one of them? Um, I'm not sure who accepted well, that one. Well, God, I, know, a lot. I know Bill accepted the, Bill Slavisek accepted the Clone Wars one because he said yes, that he... he uh, he accepted it on my behalf. I'm not sure who accepted the cartography one. I have might a hard been, time remembering who accepted the cartography. It might have been John Shindahedi, who is our D&D art director, but I'm not positive. That actually sounds very familiar because he, because I remember when he was up there, he said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm the D&D art director, and he did mention uh, that. Yeah, so, yeah that's okay. John Shindahedi. He's, he's kind of he's he's kind of a thin, got graying, kind of spiky hair. Made up yeah. name. Made up Something name. Like not a real name. 
Yeah, John, John's a really cool guy. Um, unfortunately, this was the year that uh, you know I went to Origins, and uh, Origins always kind of had a special place for me. And I haven't been—I've actually been to, had been to Gen Con more recently than Origins. So um, when it came time to send someone to Origins, I was like, you know, I need to—I need to go to Origins because I haven't been in a while. So I took the opportunity. Um, next year, though, I will 100% definitely be at uh, Gen Con. God willing, and the creek don't rise. Yeah, me too, as a matter of fact. I'm going on record awesome. now as saying that I will be at Gen Con. Good, good. So we'll, so we'll Brev, by the way. Uh, good. It'll be a big party. I, I hope that, uh, I hope that uh, you'll be there too, Chris, and oh, are you definitely, lovely yes. wife of yours, who I've never met. Of course, I've never <laughs> met either you guys either, but it feels like I have. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? How it feels mm-hmm. like we know each other and never even seen each other. Yeah, I mean, I didn't meet Sam until, when did I go to, when did I go to L.A.? In June? Uh yeah, or May, something May, like June. that. May, May or June, yeah, yeah. But you know, very cool. It was really kind of cool. Ah, well, dude, I I sincerely hope it'll happen next year. <laughs> it we will. have plans for Gen Con, sir. Big plans. Yeah. So yeah, big, big, giant, huge plans. <laughs> we need more. We need more contributors, and then we'll make. We'll have our own little con at Gen Con. It'll be D20 Con at Gen Con. How about that? Mini Con. Yeah. With 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 blackjack and, and hookers. Or, uh, or or blackjack. Or yeah. or just forget the whole thing altogether. Ah. At least we'll have we should have three podcasts nominated for any awards. Oh, at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at least three. Oh god. Yeah. Oh. Uh. Well, Rodney, I mean, obviously, I don't know what your time constraints are, man. Uh, do you have time to maybe take another question or two, maybe from the, the chat room, or we have a few more that got sent in that just weren't related to um, Rebellion Air Campaign, guys? Yeah, I, I've got a few more minutes. Cool beans. Um, oh, okay. Well, the, the, first, the first question comes from, I think it was Hero uh, of Time Beta, who asked, why does R2-D2 have better combat scenes in the first three movies than in uh, 4, 5, and 6? <laughs> uh, be- because George started using Saga Edition, and- <laughs> I got nothing. That, that's that's the answer right there. Oh, it was Darth Jared. Darth Jared said it was his question. Sorry. Oh. I just I I saw it in the forums uh, earlier today, and so it was one that after it was after our cut where we cut where we cut questions out of there. So you know, uh, Darth Jared. <clears throat> excuse me, Darth Jared. Actually, he and I have known each other for a long time. Um, we met at Gen Con many, many, many years ago. When, really? Um, yeah, when I was still running the uh, SWRP network site and, and updating it really regularly. Actually, now that I think about it, this was probably back before I started freelancing. So this would have been like, I don't know, 2001, 2002. Um, yeah, somewhere in that area. Um, started hanging out with him at uh, Gen Con, in fact. Very nice. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. There's a lot of guys that I know just through the gaming industry. That uh, um, Chris West, good example. Chris and I first really got to hang out uh, because I used to put together a Star Wars RPG Network Gen Con trip, and uh, one year Chris and his wife and kids uh, hopped in on that, and uh, we've been hanging out ever since. Dude. So before nice. Indy, he's talking to like, since it was in uh, since mm-hmm. it was in uh, Wisconsin. That's right. Um, wow. I only went one year when it was in Milwaukee, but I think that's when 
when uh, he and I met. Wow. Chris is in the chat room. He's like, those were good times, Rodney. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Beautiful I did, I, Chris, Chris was great when I had the chance to meet him actually for the first time this year. He was he was fantastic. He was jogging by Gary Starley's booth. I said, <laughs> hey, hey, you want to buy a map? Come to my booth. Buy some maps. Buy some maps. <laughs> 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 it was great. He was hilarious. Wow. Uh, so, okay, questions. I, I got a juicy question for you. Um, right. Tyler T. asked a specific advice question that kind of alludes to something you mentioned earlier. He said, I grew up reading the Rogue Squadron comics by Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. What books would you recommend to play a game like those comics? Any advice for such a game? Um, I would say, obviously, Core World Book, right? Mm. I would say Starships of the Galaxy, probably... A good one to think about, if only for opponents. Right. Uh, I would say Galaxy at War for the military structural aspect of it. Um, and then anything else on on top of that, you're you're just buying for. I would say mostly opponents, um, because I would say you can reasonably run a, a good Rogue Squadron s campaign um, with just the core rulebook and Starship of the Galaxy. But I think Galaxy at War will give you a lot that you can use to flesh out, flesh out things like your rank structure and designing missions. And and um, while mostly, I will say mostly Galaxy at War focuses on ground combat, uh, I think there's a lot that's still applicable to space combat as well. And um, then uh, get sure. Dono's big book of threats off our website. <laughs> uh, and then if I were running a game like that, I would probably also make extensive use of the. Let's see, can I mention that? I think I can. Yeah, it, it's in the product catalog. Um, Galaxy of Intrigue is going to have uh, is going to introduce skill challenges to Star Wars. Nice. So, Codified. Uh, nice. I would. Yeah, it, it, that's in, that's public information. That's in the product catalog. So, I'm not spoiling anything there. Um, so I would probably use that just because. Starship combat doesn't quite have the number of options that uh, ground combat does for obvious reasons. It just sees yeah. its use. So I would probably use a lot of skill challenges uh, it, it, along with space combat um, to sort of spice things up. Nice. nice. All right, so full-on but gamers... Unfortunately, that's not coming out until next year, so that doesn't do a lot of good now. Well, yeah, yeah. All right, full-on gamers asking if there's an errata for their errata. Uh, previous installments of Dawn of Defiance that need alteration in the face of more recent publication. Of Dawn of Defiance? Yeah. Or Department uh, of Defense. But I think he means Dawn of Defiance. <laughs> um, I have not. Um, just because Dawn of Defiance is one of those things that um, doesn't get as much attention. Um, and I, I mean that from a, 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 like a fan standpoint. Like I know how many copies of, of a book we sell. I don't know how many copies of Donald Defiance modules get downloaded. There is a very wide disparity there. Um, so it hasn't been a top priority. Um, gotcha. If there are specific things, I would say that once the campaign wraps up, and, and uh, just to throw it out there, I posted this on the forums, but I want to uh, go ahead and say it here as well. Um, uh, Donald Defiance 10 is in production. It is uh, in editing. I held it back a little while because I wanted to include some stuff from Galaxy at War in there. Um, so it's my fault that it has been delayed, but I think that the adventure is actually better for having that stuff in it. 
Um, and I, nice. when I looked at it, I was like, well, I could go ahead and push this out, or I could hold on to it and include some Galaxy at War stuff. And I decided to include the Galaxy at War stuff because I thought that I would rather the adventure go out with a bang and be more interesting than go with what I had written initially. So, yeah. Uh, so anyways, okay. once that 10th adventure comes out, I would say that will be when we look back at the series as a whole. Because I'm probably going to want to um, look at taking all that and combining it into like one really, really big PDF or something like that. Uh, right. Just so it's, you know, you can, just so it can be downloaded pretty quickly and, and in one big piece and read cover to cover effectively. Um, so yeah. I would say that'll be around the time that I'll start looking at things like that. Is it going to be about the same time you, you fully stat out Porkins? Uh, Jack Porkins. You know, I, I've been loath to stat him out because I felt it would be too much like statting myself out. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Uh, in a similar vein, talking about errata, um, we had just had a question in, the, in Echo Base, and then again, one of the other of, of the non-Rebellion era questions we got, one from Rakesh Sorrell during Keldrona, Drig, several of our other posters asked, is there going to be any other errata for any of the books that have been released that are that are coming that are coming up on the Watsi site? Uh, there could be. It's like I, I don't have any kind of ETA or anything. Um, yeah. I will. What I would say I will probably do is uh, when things slow down just a little bit for me, I will do like I did on the other books and basically um, leverage the uh, awesome unstoppable power of our message boards to help me find the biggest issues because while I keep a, a running list I, I still miss things right I mean I just oh yeah I can't keep up with every single thing and so um, look at everything and then make some decisions the the uh, the process of doing errata um, I'm much more wary of rushing the errata out like we did initially uh, and I can only plead uh, an experience on that uh, so I would prefer that if we're going to put out errata, that it be something I can put out and then not have to touch again. Um, so it, it's not out, out of the question. Um, I would just prefer to be a little more meticulous than I was with the initial errata for the Saga Edition core rulebook, and that, that just takes longer. Right. Makes sense. Okay, how about a crunchy question? One okay. that, uh, one that I honestly, this has been on the back burner for a very, very, very long time. So honestly, since the last time we had you on the show, um, it was one of the ones we didn't get to ask, uh, and it was coming from Elias Windrider. It kind of grew out of one of the questions he'd asked last time you were on, mm -hmm. and he says, "Last time you were on, you recommended that when you strip an exotic weapon that you have heavily invested feats and talents in, it might be appropriate for a GM to let the PC switch the." The ben those benefits over to the exotic variant of weapon at the cost of not being able to apply them to the unexotic variety. Um, so if like if you had weapon focused pistols, but you stripped sure. your you know stuff like that, um, he wants to know what's your opinion on uh, things like the trusty sidearm special quality of gunslinger. Could you still use that on a you know newly stripped exotic pistol? Um, you know stuff like well, that. Well, yeah. that's a little bit different. So. The reason I think it's okay for the um, uh, for talents like uh, weapon or yeah weapon specialization and feats like weapon focus is that you could conceivably take weapon focus in an exotic weapon or or weapon specialization in an exotic weapon. You cannot take 
trusty sidearm and a specific weapon, right? It specifically applies to pistols. Right. That having been said, uh, if my player was playing a gunslinger and if he wanted to um, strip his weapon and if I agreed with that, I would say the better way to handle that is to create a talent um, similar to the one in the Carabineer talent tree, which I can't remember the exact name of the talent, but it basically says, hey, you can use trusty sidearm on rifles. I would create a similar talent um, based on whatever the exotic uh, uh, exotic rifle turned out to be. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and like I say, it's just a matter of you know, weapon focus and specialization, you already have the capability of, of choosing a weapon group with that. Uh, so that you're effectively swapping out one feat for another or one talent for another, whereas with things like trusty sidearm, that doesn't really have uh, a, an equivalent that can be swapped out. Right. Well, no, that, that makes good sense. That makes very good sense. Excellent, excellent. Well, one final thought I kind of want to want to ask because we had a lot of questions about it um darth vane i think i think kind of pointed up he said listen with with the announcement of dark sun and you as the lead developer which he says he's incredibly stoked for by the way are we going to see are are we going to see less of your time spent working on saga this is my question is not intended to be snarky i'm just concerned for the possibility of saga getting pushed to the extreme back burner um you know, and he says, "Thanks for your time. I look forward to visiting the latest incarnation of Athos next year." Likewise, we've you know we had similar questions, basically saying, you know, so far in terms of the release catalog, um, are they going to be scaling down Saga releases next year? I mean, Galaxy of Intrigue and Unknown Regions are on the way, but they're January and April, respectively, a much bigger gap than we'd normally see. Were you able to drop any hints regarding plans for the game going forwards? Um. So obviously, I can't talk about anything beyond our announced product schedule. Right? There's there's nothing I can say. Um, as far as um, Galaxy of Intrigue and Unknown Regions, that's just actually that's actually just an artifact or a result of the way our catalogs are done. Catalogs always do a four month span, and it just so happens that the way our release schedule is, we typically only do two products per quarter, right? I mean, we we have occasionally had a third, oh, but yeah. um, for the most part, we're doing. Two pro- like bas- we're doing basically six products a year, two products a quarter. So there's still two products in the first quarter. It just so happens that they're at, at opposite ends of the quarter. Whereas in the past we've done, you know, one in January, one in March, or one in February, and, and one in April. Uh, yeah. I believe what happened is because the we we don't usually try and overload people with releases in a, a particular month, and that's something that spans multiple brands, right? Like we don't want to put out a ton of D&D stuff and a ton of Star Wars stuff in the same month just because people have a finite amount of money they can spend on things, right? And it, it doesn't <laughs> help us any to to overload them. Uh, it's just a, a result of the way the product schedule shook out that, you know, maybe there's a mini set coming out uh, around that time that we didn't want to conflict with or what have you. And so it's the same number that you would expect in a quarter. They're just at, at opposite ends of the uh, of the quarter. Uh, to address the Dark Sun and my time uh, issue, um, I really haven't scaled back on the work that I've been doing on Star Wars. I just pretty much do more work now than I did uh, six months ago. Um, but the nice part is, like right now, for example, we've got uh, some really good freelance editors and designers that we've sort of trained 
uh, over the past few years that I can trust them to handle things on their own without a ton of input from me right now, right? So I can basically say, okay, you know, you guys know what you're doing. I don't have to watch over you like a hawk like I did the first couple of years because, I mean, everybody takes a while to learn the system. Um, but, you know, I'm still writing about the same amount on every book that I would before, uh, maybe a little less. I, I, I took a little bit less of... Uh, Scavenger's Guide to Droids and uh, Rebellion Era, both of those books. But, you know, I still had plenty to tell you about today when I was talking about Rebellion Era. Um, <laughs> and, and the thing I don't, I'm not sure people realize or not is I've been a D&D developer since um, November of last year. Uh, so this whole time I've, I've been a full-time D&D developer. I was lead developer on the Eberron Campaign Guide, which just came out. I was lead developer on uh, Marshall Power 2. Um, and now Dark Sun and stuff like that. So this is this is nothing new for me. Uh, you guys just are, you know, you, you don't see things until, you know, right. eight or nine months after they leave my hands. So uh, <laughs> there, there's just a delay in the time that, that you guys find out about things. It's just, I mean, it's just because we have to work so far in advance, right? So, uh, yeah, I've, I've been in, I've been doing this since, you know, November of last year. It's not... Like when when people are like, oh, does this mean there's going to be a big change on the horizon? Well, for me, I'm like, what do you mean big change? Everything's exactly the same as it was six months ago. Oh, you mean as opposed <laughs> to eight months ago? Sorry, my bad. So, yeah. Um, well, no, I mean, no, that that's I'm still good developing and, and editing. Or, well, not really editing, but I'm still developing everything. And um, yeah, dude, that's 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 really good to hear. Um, <laughs> and and by the way, Eberron campaign guide rocks. Good. I'm glad you like it. I think um, James Wyatt had a lot to do with why that book turned out so well. Uh, he really had a good vision for it. And um, the the nice part about working with James, too, is that he's very receptive to feedback. And so um, funny story about that book is basically we would develop the whole thing and had it ready to go over to editing. And we sent it out to some people that basically knew nothing about D&D and nothing about um, Eberron. And we were like, hey, read this and tell us how it reads. Mm. They they came back and they were like, okay, well, you know, here are some things you could do to make this easier to read, and it actually ended up turning into kind of a restructuring of the first chapter because we were like, okay, let's make this easier to read for someone coming in cold, right? And uh, James was really really great. He whipped up a lot of new material in a hurry. Um, he and I worked together on development of those things, and basically very quickly was able we were able to turn the book into a book that would have been very nice and solid into. I think you can argue one of the better campaign setting source books that's been put out for for D anD. d Like, I think Eberron reads ex- <clears throat> excuse me reads extremely well. I think it is um, whether you like the specifics of the setting or not. I think that the way that the book is put together is is very very good. Well, dude, I've mentioned this. I'm an Eberron junkie. From I mean, I, I literally it got me back into three five when I thought I was going to leave three five and. Um, Reading the reading the campaign guide, uh, the first thought that came to me when I had finished reading it cover to cover was, okay, that was clean. It was clean. And I was impressed at the amount of information that was put, accessibly put into that tight of a space. Um, and it wasn't overbearing, and it was still comprehensive. No, no, bravo, man. It was, it was very good work. Yeah, I, I would love to take some credit for it, but really, basically, I was just there to make sure that the monsters actually worked. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, so like I said, no, nothing's really, I mean, there, there's nothing really I can I can tell you that's different for me except for 
um, on a couple of books I've designed less, but that's because I've got guys like Sterling and Patrick that they've now they've designed three or four books for me. And heck, even uh, uh, Donovan Morningfire is uh, now Mr. Yeah. Freelance Designer for me, right? Like I've picked up some designers that that can do good work and, and do it consistently. So that means that I can sort of put the initial design in their hands. And then from there, it's, it's about me ushering things out. Now, big systems like the skill challenge in, in galaxy of intrigue, I designed that system because it's, you know, it's something that I wanted to make sure was done a certain way. And, and then there's a, a new system in, in uh, the unknown regions that I wanted to do a certain way as well. So uh, I, I still take my, I still do a, a fair portion of the design of these books as well. So, um, yeah, it's it's not any different than what you what you guys should expect on any of the books that are out right now. It's good to hear. It's Very awesome. good yeah. to hear. Yeah, I wish I had more exciting something to tell you, but not really. <laughs> All right, we'll have you on in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about more good stuff. Yeah, sounds good. But okay. alas, I think I must take my leave of you, gentlemen. Uh, let yeah. me know if you ever get that um, uh, talk shoe thing working. Yeah, if we ever get it working, we will. So well, we're this, coming this up is, on this is twice now that it's crapped out. I don't know if it is the combination of Skype and UStream and or, or what, but I don't know. Because Dave, you were testing it earlier, right? And yeah, it was I tested it worked, and so once I have everything going, that doesn't work anyway. Yep. We're coming up on Gucci time, so if we hit that, we're dead. So we better cut it off. Alright, dude, so I will uh, let you guys not go. I'm going to go watch Mad Men, and uh, I'll talk right. to you later, okay? <laughs> Thank Good you night, very Rod. much, Rodney. Adios. Talk to you later. So there goes Rodney Thompson. The Rodster. Game designer, Wizards of the Coast. So we've got um, all our stuff running through. Lots of people have put in requests for titles of the episode and uh, I think, you know, most I've seen come up time and time and time again was Rodney's Rebel Resource Guide or something like that. I oh, no, Robin, yeah, Rodney's Rebel Field Guide based off uh, Kraken's Rebel Field Guide. The old, yeah, uh, yeah. Rodney's dude, Rob, Rebel Rodney's Field Rebel Field Guide, Field Guide. totally, yeah. yeah I, think that was, I think that was it, Rodney's Rebel Field Guide. I, I did kind of like Rodney and Porkins go to White Castle, but, you know. We never mentioned White Castle in the in the show. We did not ever mention White Castle. Uh-uh. Cat had All something right. too about awesome sauce, but I forgot what it was, and I liked it, but it was it was funny. At this point, I'm already typing Rodney's Rebel Field Guide. Well, okay. In that case, <laughs> I'm just teasing. We'll go ahead and end the care. show. How about that? How about that? I so yeah, um, Guild, you guys go join. It's on the forum, d20radio.com slash forum. Yeah. Scroll down to the order of 66 and find the Champions Online Guild Forum. We have a couple of people who have already been named to the council, which would be basically Alpha Ant, myself, mostly Joe, and uh, TJ. Those are your four guild leaders to start. There are several that are next in line, which are Jedi Masters, and then we've got some Knights and Padawans. And so those are the four levels, and I think those are the four levels we're going to go with when we go into the Old Republic. 
And so far, everyone's getting together, and they're nice, and they're behaving, and everyone's working together, and we're finishing missions, and we got we got several, I think, that are already pushing level 30. Dang. And the game's been out for exactly one day. That worries me. Of course, we had, like, five days head start over the weekend, so. Uh, okay, well, that, that worries me less. Yeah, there you go. Hunky so. to the dory. Yeah, so that's good stuff. We enjoy right. it, and, you know... Uh, yes, Felicia Day was on the Xbox podcast. I'm aware of that. They have a whole lot more pull, being that they have like a million listeners, and we have like a ten thousand, maybe in a month. So you know, yeah, we don't rate. We just don't rate, and you know. we don't. We don't rate. Gamer Nation, because um, I know I've already gotten some some PMs. Uh, I know you guys sent in a lot of questions for Rodney. Obviously, the Rebellionary ones got, got precedence. Um, we weren't able to ask every single minutia question you gave us, um, but uh, you know, the, again, hopefully we'll get the chance to, to get those answered later on. And I want to thank you guys for sending in all the questions you did. Now, if you guys have any questions for next week's episode, anything you'd like us to tackle, you can, of course, email us, gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdave at d20radio.com, or you can, of course, Dave, call the loser line, yes? That's right, area code 206-600-5872. Yes, and, and that's head to uh, d20radio.com slash forum as well. That's right. Twitter, follow me. Twitter.com slash GM Dave. Follow him at twitter.com slash GM Chris. Follow the network, automated feed, d20 radio. Yes, it is excellent. Good night, Gamer Nation. Good night. Good luck. Chat room died again. It did. You know, <laughs> it's like clockwork, freaking Ustream. Good time. If Ustream simply paid as much money as they did on their UI to make sure that their shit worked, they'd probably have a really good service. Most likely. Shit. Shit, shit. <laughs> hey, I already played. I already played the thing. Yes, you did. <laughs> so, you know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, all right. Two minutes, two hours, 24 minutes, 29 seconds, and we'll say, you guys stay hard, keep jamming, and we'll see ya.